Ladies and gentlemen, to those among you who are easily frightened, we suggest you turn away now. To those of you who think they can take it, we say, welcome. Richard, for two meetings in a row, we get to hear songs that are my favorites. Remember last time we heard some erasure? Well, this one is called Doctor and the TARDIS. It's by the Time Lords, which, depending on where you see, they are either made up of people from the KLF or they are, are with the KLF. But anyway, it, it was an electronic novelty single released on May 23rd, 1988, and it is not available on iTunes. Well, there you go. <laughs> that I- comes from my personal collection. And that's, see, you've got Doctor Who in your personal collection. That's impressive. Yes, yes. It, it wasn't at all because in the 90s I liked uh, this kind of dance music. Yes. Well, a catchy little tune. Yes, I like it. I like it. And we are playing something related to Doctor Who. I wouldn't dare try to explain why. This is going to be your little baby. Tell us why. We are celebrating Doctor Who this month, partially because... November 23rd is the anniversary date of Doctor Who. Back in 1963, Doctor Who debuted on November 23rd, which, of course, was just right after the assassination of President Kennedy. And in a rare act by the BBC television and and television in general, they replayed the first episode the very following week because the first episode got lost in the shuffle and they wanted to give it its just due. So the very first episode called An Unearthly Child was replayed on November 30th. Not a big anniversary this year, but November is Doctor Who anniversary month, and I figured diving into the television series would be way too daunting, much as diving into Dark Shadows was daunting for me. But there were two movies made in 1965 and 1966 starring, of course, the great Peter Cushing. And It's Doctor Who, but it's not. Think of it as Earth 2 Doctor Who, 
There's similarities, but there are some big differences, and we're going to talk about that today as we dive into Doctor Who and the Daleks from 1965 and Daleks Invasion Earth 2150 AD from 1966. Yes, and if you hear Richard talking even more than usual, it's because he is our Doctor Who expert. You can't have listened to any of our episodes without knowing that. I, quite frankly, didn't even attempt much research, but I have my usual opinions on these movies, which... Uh, I will share as we go along. Well, I think that'll be the fun thing is getting yes. your getting your idea. This is again it, it, this compare this to if you watched the Dark Shadows movies and didn't watch the television series. It's not a true representation of the series. It gives you a, a flavor of what the the TV show was like. And I like being that perspective being flipped because being a Dark Shadows fan, I have always thought, oh my gosh, if you watch House of Dark Shadows, you're gonna want to see Dark Shadows. I felt it was a representation of the storyline. But when we get there, I'm going to see what you feel about if you watch these movies, would you want to watch um, the series? So we'll get to that. But before all of that, let's call the meeting to order. Richard, this week, let's say who we are and what we represent. We, I realize we haven't been doing that lately. I'm Jeff Owens from ClassicHorrors.club. And I am Richard Chamberlain from kccinephile.com and monstermoviekid.wordpress.com. We have roll call for a few new members. Uh, We would like to welcome Jim Fanning and Craig Brewitt to the Facebook group page, The Classic Horrors Club Podcast. We also have a double dipper, I guess. I, I saw that Nicholas Hatcher join, and I could swear he had, I mean, we've done things with us. He's helped us out and sent us voicemails and... I thought, well, maybe he just did that on side and had never joined the group, but apparently, I can't imagine having Facebook issues. I mean, gosh, I, I've I, never had any Facebook issues. I guess I've never heard of that, but, yeah, you know, that's, that's fine if that's the story you want to go with. Yeah. Well, that's <laughs> the excuse he's using. He's not like, all right, he was sick of our baloney and he unsubscribed or whatever, <laughs> and he's back. But no, he's back and, and never was really gone, but... Uh, he counts because I show that he, he became a member. So welcome to you all. We invite you to join our Facebook group page, join the conversation. We also invite you to call us and leave a voicemail at 616-649-2582. That's 616-649-CLUB. <laughs> Very good. We have a voicemail. We have a response to a challenge that Rich- Richard issued during our last meeting. And that is from our friend Bill Mize. We'll go ahead and play that voicemail, and then uh, I'm sure Richard will follow up with some comments. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Richard. It's Bill Mize from over at the Bill Watches Movies podcast, and I am calling in to respond to the challenge that you issued last show. Now, I'm guessing that they are called challenges for a reason because, well... Lord, the beast from the beginning of time was certainly a challenge to watch from beginning to end. The copy that I managed to find online looked like 10th generation VHS copy that had been filmed through a pretty thick layer of Vaseline smeared on the lens. I was pleasantly surprised to see that it had a strong connection to Kansas, which is perhaps why you chose this movie? Now, I don't want to burn my allotted time to sing its praises, but perhaps use my soapbox to talk about something adjacent to it. Creativity. 
Now, we're all creators, you, me, Derek over at Monster Kid Radio, Rod over at the Bloody Pit, Nick and Mary over at the B-Movie Cast, and also Tom Leahy Jr. and the cast and crew of The Beast from the Beginning of Time. Now, whether you pick up a microphone, a film camera, a musical instrument, or something as simple as a pencil to write a poem or a novel, we are all creators. Now, someone thought enough of this movie to put up the money, to write a script, to hire the staff and actors, and put that thing together. It's like uh, Judy Garland and Mickey Rooney putting on a show in the barn, and I love that. Well, not necessarily the movies, but I love the ideas behind the movies in that it's never been easier to become a creator. The hardware, the software, the websites, there are hundreds if not thousands of tools available today that enable us to create something that we are drawn to create. Six months ago, I knew nothing about writing, recording, editing, and distributing a podcast, and now, well, someone argued that I still don't know anything about that, but hey, at least I'm putting it out there, you know, it's my own little show in a barn. You two are doing the same, and so did those Wichita, Kansas filmmakers over 50 years ago, and that's what I want to celebrate about the film. The mere act of creating, of bringing something to life that did not exist beforehand. I encourage everyone out there who can hear this to start creating something that you love today. You just never know where it will take you. Thank you guys, as always, for your patronage and your support of the show. I truly appreciate it. I love calling in. I would be glad to be a guest on the show sometime in the future. And I look forward to every show every month. Y'all keep creating, and I'll talk to you later. All right. Thank you, sir, for accepting my challenge. So let me give you some history behind The Beast from the Beginning of Time, because you went into this very, very cold, and your comments are pretty much dead on. What you were watching is was probably not a great copy and there may be a better copy out there depending on which version you watched on youtube unfortunately there is no high definition version of this film that ever will be the movie was made in 1965 in wichita kansas and the surrounding area by tom Leahy. tom Leahy actually is a bit of horror royalty who doesn't really get as much recognition as as some other horror hosts, but he was one of the originals. His character was called The Host, and the show was Nightmare. His sidekick was Rodney, and it debuted on ABC television in Wichita in 1958. They had the Shock Theater package, so they were one of the first stations out there. And he continued to do that character on not only ABC, but the NBC affiliate, on and off over the years, and even brought it back circa 1990 on Fox 24 uh, and ran for about a year in color. And Tom Leahy's a, a personality from Wichita. He also was a character called Major Astro. He was an afternoon uh, kitty show host. He introduced cartoons and Gilligan's Island, and um, he originated that as well during the, the Space Age and brought it back in the 1980s when uh, we launched our 
first UHF station in Wichita in 1986 that eventually became Fox 24. He brought Major Astro back for at least, I think, a year, maybe two. Um, the movie, when you, I had to chuckle when you said raised money. I'm not sure they raised <laughs> much money for this. All of the talent that you see in this movie is local personalities. Probably one of the ones that, that had the most pseudo-acting skill, and I'm drawing a blank now on the actor's name, which is horrible, but the actor who played... I think he was like a scientist or, or, you know, he had a scene in the office. He was, uh, Harvey was his last name. He was um, a few other characters in Wichita. He was a character called Freddie Fudd, Elmer's brother who introduced cartoons. And he was also Santa Claus for many, many, many years on Santa's Toy Shop, which was part of my childhood. That You know, most of these people didn't have any acting. They were local TV personalities or insurance salesmen. And they they decided to make this movie because everyone was making low-budget movies. And the dream was to release it, but it never got released. The One of the people that was involved in it, besides Tom Leahy, who had the connections, well, he went off to Hollywood and became a cameraman for ABC. I think he did Wide World of Sports. And the movie just kind of sat on a shelf. Uh, Tom was the writer, director, producer, and he was the uncredited, I think he had a a pseudonym, but he played the caveman in the movie. The movie didn't see the light of day until 1980 when it debuted on television as a Halloween trick-or-treat and played on TV for a couple of years and then didn't get its theatrical debut until its 20th anniversary when uh, it debuted, no, 30th anniversary, excuse me, yeah, 30th anniversary, so it had been 1995 when it debuted and celebrated at the Orpheum Theater in Wichita. And maybe it was even 40th anniversary now that I'm thinking about it. No, it was 40th, it was 2005, because I remember my son went with me. You know, I wish the movie would get a release, I wish we had a better copy of it, the copy was literally the one and only copy that Tom Leahy had. That's what you saw was probably a television broadcast, so it was a copy of a VHS. If you seek out the film on archive.org from Demolition Kitchen Media, a gentleman by the name of Joel Sanderson acquired a copy of the film, and he's pieced it together with some of uh, the Nightmare uh, host footage to kind of create this lost episode of Nightmare That's probably the best copy you're going to find out there. It's a quirky, fun film. Jeff hasn't even seen it. I have to get a copy of it to him or get him that link. It's something fun. It's a lost film. It is something that you would probably see on a Mill Creek set. It is just as good as some of the low-budget flicks from the time period. Uh, Unfortunately, Tom is long since gone, and we're never going to get a good copy of the film. A copy is sitting with the Kansas Historical Society, and that's pretty much where it's going to sit. I suppose it's public domain, but Tom Leahy never wanted it released. He didn't quite understand there was an audience for those kind of films. So it sits, and so it'll probably never get an official release. There you go. There's the background of The Beast in the Beginning of Time. I'm impressed you found it. I you know, didn't expect that you would necessarily like it, but it's an oddity, and so now you know a little bit more information about The Beast from the Beginning of Time. Thank you for calling back and accepting my challenge, sir. Yes, and now we know anything we challenge, Bill is up to the task. He is going to accept it. Bill, I don't know how long you've been listening to the B-Movie cast. You mentioned that in your voicemail, but 
Way back on March 8th in 2010, Mr. Richard Chamberlain was the guest host on the B-Movie cast, and they discussed the Beast from the beginning of time. So if you are intrigued and want to know more, I'm sure they got deeper into it in that episode. Do you remember that at all? Ten years ago, yeah. almost. That's insane. I, You know, I remember Vince was having uh, one of his outages, and I had found a copy of the film, and I sent him a copy and said, you know, I, I think this is something you're going to dig. And he did. And he said, do you want to talk about it on the show? I said, absolutely. And then he said, well, do you want to do two episodes? He wanted to get a, an episode in the can. And so actually my first appearance was talking about Confessions of an Opium Eater with Vincent Price, which was an unseen film at that point. It had never been released on home media. And then we did the the Beast episode. And for quite a few years, the uh, he had a link to the movie up on his site. It's no longer there, but for a long time it was. So... Um, and that was the start of several appearances that I had on the on the B movie cast. So I I do vaguely remember it. That movie I have talked about before, but I actually wrote an article about it for Nick Brown's B movie man website. That led me to write an article on King Kung Fu, which is another movie made in Wichita, featuring Tom Leahy as a John Wayne like sheriff. And then that led to me starting my Monster Movie Kid blog. Seven years ago, back in in October of 2012, I launched it with my very first 31 Days of Halloween. My reviews were a lot shorter, and it was a random selection of classics and not-so-classics. That movie was a catalyst for a lot of different things. That movie was a catalyst for me getting in the Basement Sublet of Horror magazine that I did at one point. I wrote some articles for with Joel Sanderson, who was the, the mastermind behind that. Yeah, I mean, that's just kind of where everything kind of starts. It all kind of links back indirectly to that movie. So that movie's near and dear to my heart for that reason alone. It, it opened some doors and and got me in front of a, a microphone for the first time. And now I'm sitting here with you recording this week's episode. Look at the good that came from that. Exactly. So Bill, and I know you didn't, you gave those creators a lot of credit, but you, we cannot cannot discount the importance of this movie and the history of horror sci-fi movies and podcasting. Yeah, it's important to me because, as I said, it, it's uh, it, it, and I looked for that movie for so many years, and I stumbled upon the fact that it aired on an episode of the Basement Sublet of Horror, which was a local horror host show that Joel Sanderson did. And you know, I'm going to give a shout out to Joel. Uh, I recently saw him at a convention. He's got a pretty cool deal because some of his early episodes of the basement subletter of horror are being made available on the night flight plus service night flight is uh, all those weird movies and music videos and and documentaries and stuff that you saw back in the day on night flight they've got their own streaming channel now they've got free content but they also have some content that's part of a subscription service and he's part of that they actually sought him out and added, uh, they're going to be adding his Basement Sublet of Horror episodes, as well as another show he did called The Junkyard and the Rabbit, uh, which is all locally produced in nearby Lawrence, Kansas. It's going to be going on the Night Flight Plus service in November. He just posted about this the other day. I don't think he listens to the podcast, but congratulations. That's a pretty cool thing to have you uh, be sought out for your work. Somewhere in the midst of all that is the beast from the beginning of time. There you go. 
And we have another, well, not really feedback, but uh, our good friend Steve Torek sent us a file. He attended the Fall Monster Bash uh, just a couple weeks ago in Mars, Pennsylvania. And since we had done an episode on Fay Ray, he recorded the guest at Monster Bash, Fay Ray's daughter, Vicki Riskin. Recorded her panel, her Q&A, and uh, we're going to play some clips of that here, just sort of as a sequel, I guess, to our Fay Ray episode. This has been a great day, Fay Ray day. Your mom, we were sitting in the back, and I said, your mom's been on the screen all day long. Well, I think you asked me a question, which was, oh, uh, yes. may I help you with your question? Yes. Okay. okay. Yeah. Um, you know, had I, had I seen my mother when I was young and what my reaction was to that? And well, that and, and was there ever a, a time of watching, say, you know, let's have some popcorn and watch? And Lance was. So, yeah. Yes, that's, was there a time, well, so when you, when your mother's been in King Kong, it's not like you can exactly get away from that, that reality, and so my first sort of awareness of her being in King Kong actually uh, came before I saw the film, when I was um, in the third grade, and I was new to the school, and I was on the playground, and a little boy came up to me and said, so, uh, I hear your father's an ape. Now, that does not give you the best relationship with the film. I, I have to explain that. And, uh, so, and it was that same year that on Million Dollar Movie, they were showing King Kong for the first time, for me. And my mother said, sweetheart, do you think you'd like to see the film? And she said, I think you're old enough. And I thought, well, I'm old enough for anything. Yeah, of course. <laughs> So she put me in front of the TV set, which was a big console on the floor, and I sat practically two feet away from it and uh, started to watch it. And she uh, would kind of walk back and forth in the living room, say, I'm on the way to the kitchen. But she was checking up on me because she was afraid that it would be traumatizing for me to see the film and see her in such jeopardy. So. Uh, she came back and forth, and then by the end of the film, I was sobbing. And she said, oh my gosh, sweetheart, I am so sorry. I, it must have been so upsetting to you to see your mother in jeopardy. And I said, no, you were so mean to King Kong. And they killed him. I couldn't get over it. It was like, don't you get it? He just liked you. And I didn't talk to her for at least an hour. <laughs> So I've had this relationship with this 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 fellow as she did all of her career, and uh, even though my mother made and starred in over 120 films and television shows, King Kong was the film she was always remembered for. But I'm glad you saw some of her other films today. She actually did also some comedies and some spy movies and. She did a, a, a cross-section of films. Um, I just saw her last night in Viva Villa, where she shoots Pancho Villa. He deserved it. <laughs> but, uh, so she, she was quite versatile as an actress, but King Kong is the movie that's remembered, and I think it's because it's really an extraordinary film. I don't know how you all feel about it. But I've seen all the remakes. I sort of liked Peter Jackson's version of it. But, um, and I've seen it on my book tour now, because we've 
we've I've had uh, screenings and you know at UCLA and at Eastman House and where the beautiful prints have played and each time I see it I, I remark again to myself on what an extraordinary film it is and um, the role that it actually played in in, in film history if, if that's okay I just want to remind people that this is made in the heart of the depression and RKO as a studio was in near bankruptcy, if not in fact in bankruptcy. And there was a young uh, direct, uh, a producer named David Selznick. Is that a name that's familiar to most of you? 29 years old, who kept kind of robbing from Peter to pay Paul, or in this case King Kong. He was taking little bits of money from other movies and siphoning them off into King Kong, because he had a sense, he had an instinct that this was gonna be a, a, a terrific film. So um, it took many months to film because uh, of the stop motion photography, which is really quite brilliant. And today, even people who are super expert in technology and do all the CGI stuff and uh, love this film, say, oh, we still don't get how they did some of those shots. Uh, and it, it's kind of true. Um, but when it opened in, uh, in New York, it opened at Radio City Music Hall, and then also across the street at an RKO theater. And the first night, first night, 9,000 people went to see it in New York. And overnight, the studio was on its way to solvency, and that, I think over 100,000 people saw it that, that first week. Now, it was not only remarkable because so many people came, but uh, it, it re-stimulated um, interest in movie going because it was in the middle of the Depression, people stopped going to, to movies. <coughs> movie houses were closing down, the studios were facing severe uh, threats to their business uh, because they owned all the theaters as well as the movie making. And uh, now comes along a film that gets people excited again. A few weeks later they opened uh, at Grauman's Chinese. We just showed it a few months ago at Grauman's uh, as part of my book tour. Um, so, so there's that. The other thing I want to say though, in, in my more recent let's say, life with uh, researching and writing the book, um, that the two men who made the film, Marion C. Cooper and Ernest B. Schoedzak, were really extraordinary guys. And um, they had a whole brilliant life before they ever made this film. Um, Cooper had been an Air Force uh, He'd been a, a pilot during World War One, And in fact, that last scene where the, where the planes are going around, the air, that's Cooper flying the plane, the director. And, and in the back is his co-director, Ernest B. Schoedzak. I mean, they were crazy, frankly. But, um, but Cooper was shot down at, in enemy territory. And when he was shot down, his plane caught on fire, his hands were burned, he had to navigate the plane with his elbows, he landed, he was put in prison, he came out, he joined the Polish Air Force and taught the Poles how to fly and fight the Russians. And then, and then he and Shodzak found each other and they went all around the world taking docu doing documentary 
films uh, about remote places. And that was a time when people had no idea what most of the world looked like. So they went to Persia, they followed a huge tribe of about 50,000 people going over mountains that were 15,000 feet high. And they took a woman along for color commentary, right? Uh, and they, fought, and they, they, they crossed rivers with the, the animals. And then later they went to Thailand and they filmed <laughs> elephant stampedes. They actually caused them, right? Uh, so that they would stampede and they'd get good footage. So when you see this film, it's autobiographical. Carl Denham is this crazy guy who has to bring along a woman, right, to, to, to sell his movie. And that's exactly what he experienced himself. And at some point, when he's taking photographs of my mother on the deck, he says something like, well, I got rid of my cameraman because there was a rhino who was going to stampede us and he got scared and I figured I'd just do it myself. That was Cooper. He was writing about himself. So in many ways, this is an autobiographical film. So I, that's all I'm going to say for about that. Okay. Did your mom <laughs> say or have any thoughts on Son of Kong? No. Okay. No, I don't think she ever saw it. Okay, so the, okay. Um, and now you mentioned, of course, um, uh, with those that she kept in touch with mm -hmm. uh, for for years after, way after right. the movie, and um, well, in particular, me. she stayed in touch with with uh, Marion C. Cooper. She had done a film with him and and with Ernest B. Chodzak. She, she'd done a film with uh, Cooper and Chodzak before, called Four Feathers. Uh, that's been made and remade and remade, but. Um, and they just liked each other. They were very bright guys, and she loved working with them. And so when it came to, to making Kong, she had been in New York making a, doing a play with a fellow named Archibald Leach. Anyone know who I'm talking about? Cary Grant. This is his first kind of role in the United States. And truthfully, she was married at the time, but she had a little crush on him. Nothing came of it, unfortunately. But anyway, <laughs> uh, so when when he came to Hollywood, um, he was given a contract at Paramount, and he said, could he have Faye Ray's dressing room? She was now uh, at Liberty without a contract, and she got a call from Cooper, and he said, Faye, you're going to star opposite the tallest, darkest leading man in Hollywood. And she said, oh my God, I'm gonna be with Cary Grant again. And then he showed her this picture of this con character. But they stayed friends um, uh, and uh, for the rest of their lives. And, and Shodzak, who, who was very, very tall, he was like over six feet tall, at the genius of the two, the technical genius, and Cooper was probably about five foot seven. He was shorty, and, but they called they called Monty Shodzak Shorty, and Cooper they called Coop. Shodzak uh, ended up, in the latter part of his life, going blind, and um, insulated himself pretty much in his house, and built hi-fi, you used to call it hi-fi equipment, um, stereo equipment, uh, music equipment, and just listened to music and went into other realms. And my mother was very loyal to him and went to see him regularly. 
Cooper moved to uh, Palm Springs, so they didn't see each other so much. But every time Cooper and my mother saw each other, he would pound his chest and she would laugh. And that was, that was their friendship. That is so good. All those years later. All those years yes. later. Always cared about each other. Let's uh, open up for some questions. Yeah. Any fun stories with your mom at home? Just fun, everyday stories. My mother had a fabulous sense of humor. Uh, she, both my parents had a wonderful sense of humor. It was a great environment to grow up in. Um, and uh, uh, we used to, uh, when people would come for dinner, my mother and I would pretend we could speak foreign languages. <laughs> so we'd have these very heated debates in like German or Swedish or, you know, Mongolian. And people were so impressed. <laughs> we didn't know what we were saying, but we, it was very adamant, you know, conversation. We, she was very playful. I mean, I think the thing about my mother, um, so much I admire about her, first of all, she came to Hollywood uh, alone when she was 14 in the care of a young man because her family was so poor they thought maybe she could get into the movies. So she had a kind of resiliency uh, and, and sweetness um, and intelligence. But for me, when I was growing up with her, um, she made, my, made me fresh orange juice every morning, you know, squeezing the, squeezing the oranges she made my peanut butter and jelly sandwiches just the way I liked them. Tuna fish sandwiches every time I went to school. She made you know, my lunch and put a little note in my lunch box. Have a wonderful day, sweetheart. She was a very dear human being and um, she always called me Ficola. And I called her Fazy uh, uh, up to the very end of her life. She lived to be 97. And um, she was still fun. She was still fun at, well, maybe her 97th year was she was winding down, but um, there, there were, we laughed a lot. And um, uh, like when Peter Jackson asked her to be in the remake, uh, I was a little reluctant to have that happen because I wanted people to remember this Faye, right, that you saw. But I didn't want to disappoint Peter. I, I admire him a lot. So I arranged for them to meet in New York. And uh, I flew in afterwards to be, she was living in New York, and I said, oh, you met with Peter Jackson. Did you have a nice time? You know, he, he won all the Oscars for uh, The Lord of the Rings. I mean, he was just a huge hit. And she said, oh, okay. Well, yeah, we did have dinner. I said, um, so what do you think of him? And she said, He's too fat. <laughs> oh, I said, what did you think of Naomi Watts? And she said, oh, she's too skinny. And I said, do you want to be in his movie? I mean, he's his famous director. She said, no, don't want to be in the movie. And I thought that was so sweet. And I was relieved in a way, you know, because there's, but he, of course, dedicated the film to her. And I thought that was wonderful. So growing up with her, I mean, she used to, I went to summer camp, she would come up to the camp. You know, we'd hang out and go horseback riding together. She was a, a, a person of, of many gifts, <laughs> very bright, very, 
even though she barely finished high school, well, she didn't really, um, extremely well-read. She could do the New York Times crossword puzzle without any difficulty. Thank you, Mr. Turk, for sending that in. You know, it makes me really miss not being able to attend the, the fall version of Monster Bash and especially the Vincent Price August event two great events that you've had the opportunity to attend. So it, uh, we appreciate you sending that in. Giving you a shout out right now for your podcast. You have joined, officially joined the podcast community, launching your show, the uh, Diecast Movie Review Podcast. Doing it with your children, and I think that's awesome. Taking a kind of a different approach. Um, you're rolling the die, picking a film, picking a genre. So it's not going to be strictly... You know, a horror podcast is not going to be strictly a drama podcast or a musical. You're going to be doing a little bit of this and a little bit of that, and that makes it very interesting. And uh, your first episode, uh, Inherit the Wind, with Josh Kennedy, awesome start, and uh, congratulations. Welcome to the to the podcast community officially, and uh, look forward to many more episodes from you and your family in the future. Yes, and I have not listened to that first episode yet. I did, however, listen to his interview with Victoria Price. Uh, that was, I think he did that as his second episode. Yeah. So, yeah, that's that's great. That's Yeah, that was a lot of fun. It made me, I really want to see her sometime, and hopefully one of these years she'll appear at Bash when I'm appearing at Bash. Like, <laughs> I'm a guest. When I'm visiting Bash attending bash <laughs> anyway uh hopefully i get a chance to see her one of these days she is carrying on the the mantle and legacy of her father very very well she she totally gets it and appreciates it and really appreciates the fans and that interview he was talking about some non-horror related things asking some details you know about things that's important to her as well outside of the vincent price films and i thought that was really kind of a cool touch to the interview so uh, again cool stuff Hello. It began just as you see here. Do you know what you have just done? You have transferred us in time and space, and I hadn't even set the controls. Now I don't know where we are. We could be anywhere in the universe and at any time. Yes, this is how it began. The adventure that started by accident, taking us out of this time and place to a lost planet. Come with us into that strange new world. I cannot guarantee your safety, but I can promise you unimagined thrills. You have invaded the world of the Daleks. Every move you make, we can see. They know we've escaped. They're cutting through the door. Come with us to the petrified forest. Meet the Thars, the blonde giants who have survived the monstrous rule of the Daleks. We must get to the city. They could have scanners here, anything. I'm going back. No, you're not. We'll all be killed. We'll never defeat the Daleks. We are watching you. We can destroy you. It's a trap! Go back! Run! These are the 
the people trapped by the Daleks. Doctor Who, the brilliant science professor. The young man who triggered off this strange journey. The professor's frightened granddaughter. And the youngster who inherited her grandfather's adventurous spirit. Doctor Who and the Daleks. Now you can see them in color on the big screen, closer than ever before. So close, you can feel their fire. So thrilling, you must be there. Barbara, look behind you! Stop the countdown! The bomb will destroy the planet! Doctor Who is an eccentric scientist who, with the help of his granddaughters Susan and Barbara, has created a time machine called the TARDIS. It stands for Time and Relative Dimensions in Space. When Barbara's boyfriend accidentally activates the TARDIS, they travel to the long-dead planet Scarrow. Or is it dead? They soon get the answer when they discover a mutated race of creatures in mechanical bodies. They are the Daleks. Okay, it is time to dive into the first film, Doctor Who and the Daleks, 1965. I guess the best way to start is give a little bit of of brief history about the television show and how we got to the movie. 1963, Doctor Who, the television show, is created by uh, Sidney Newman, who did not get any credit in either of these films, and I think that's a travesty because... The Daleks were a creation of Terry Nation, but they were a creation for the Doctor Who show, which was created by Sidney Newman. So Terry Nation gets prominent billing in both these movies because it says based on the BBC television serial by Terry Nation. And that's somewhat inaccurate. Yes, he wrote the original scripts for the, the episodes that these movies are based on, but he didn't create Doctor Who. And Sidney Newman should have been given credit for that. The show started uh, November 23rd, 1963. And right out of the gate, one of the key differences between the television series and these movies is that in the television series, he's never called Doctor Who. The show was called Doctor Who. He was listed in the credits as Doctor Who for about, I think, the first 18 years. But he was always called The Doctor. In both of these movies, he's called Doctor Who. And that, that immediately is a separation from the TV show and the movie and the fact that in the movies, he's human. He's an eccentric scientist, but he is human. And in the television series, he's actually a, an alien. He's, he's from the planet Gallifrey. The name Gallifrey wouldn't even come into play until the 1970s. I think it was 74 before they even named... Uh, the planet that he's from, which was, what, 11 seasons in the show. And it was six seasons before they ever identified him as a Time Lord. We knew he was a time traveler, but we didn't know he was a Time Lord. You don't get any of that in these movies. In the original uh, show, his granddaughter was Susan. 
So that that thing, that piece of the of the uh, the initial story is the same. However, big difference in the television series. Susan was a teenager, and she's followed home by a, two of her teachers, Ian and Barbara. Barbara is no relation to Susan in the television show. Barbara was a little bit older in the TV show, and she was actually not in a relationship, but they were two teachers who were fond of each other. And by the end of their run, Ian and Barbara are obviously, you know, headed towards a, a romance. You didn't really see that on the show, but they obviously cared for each other. The TARDIS exterior does look the same. Um, however, the interior is vastly different because as they, this movie approaches the character of Doctor Who as an eccentric scientist, you see wires and all sorts of, of crazy attachments and knobs and levers and all, or levers, levers yeah. excuse me. Uh, in the in the television show, there is a console in the middle. That's where he runs the ship. There's no wires. There's there's lights. There's switches and stuff. But the the walls are are, are white. There's a feeling of it's basically a, a big. The TARDIS control room is a big room, and there are multiple rooms in the TARDIS. I mean, uncountless rooms because there's just you well, know, it's it's infinite almost. And you don't get that feel in this, although you do know that it's bigger on the inside than the outside. You don't really get a feel that there's anything different other than this console. There's no conversation about that there's other rooms, that there's bedrooms, that there's a pool, which gets mentioned on the show at one point. Uh, you even see it, actually, in one episode. You don't get a feel for any of that at all. Because the show was not made by the BBC, there are certain things that... that also are not included in the movies. The theme music is not anywhere in these movies. And even the TARDIS sound is different. The kind of screeching, grinding sound that the TARDIS makes when it uh, appears and disappears isn't seen in this at all. You get this kind of whimsical little sound as it disappears and reappears. Nothing like the television show. Some pretty big differences from the original show to the movies even the the way the characters are played, for example, Ian is he's he's a bumbling guy in this in this one. He's he actually accidentally starts the TARDIS, and Ian is actually kind of the dashing hero of the television show. He was the one that did all of the heavy lifting, so to speak, because the Doctor is actually played on the television show by an older actor, William Hartnell. There are some similarities between the way Peter Cushing approaches the character and William Hartnell, but there are some differences. Hartnell is, he walks with a cane, and he's, he's you know, certainly an elderly grandfather type who doesn't get in the thick of things. That's for his companions to do, and that was the way the show went for the first three seasons uh, with Hartnell, that Ian and, of course, other male leads that came after him were the ones doing all the action. Definitely not what you get here, because Ian is this kind of a, a bumbling idiot who kind of stumbles into things. He does do some of the pseudo-heroic action, but in a very different way than actor William Russell did on the television show. May I ask a couple questions at this point so far? So first of all, I have heard over the years how Doctor Who fans do not consider these movies to be Doctor Who, technically. And I understand that now. It's because he's human, so he is not the same character or person as in the television show second question was the this story in doctor who and the daleks the first doctor who story it's the second okay. the very first story episodes were 25 minutes long 
and typically a collected story ran four to six episodes. The very first story, the first episode basically kind of sets everything up and then leads into the next three episodes that are a a pretty lame caveman story. But it establishes certain things and, and kind of helps build the characters. The second story was the Daleks. And it was seven parts, if I remember. Yeah, it was a seven-part story. And that's where the similarity comes in because the movie is very plays out very much like the the uh, the Daleks television episode more con, you know more condensed seven episodes spread out 25 minutes each you're looking at well over two hours of, of footage as opposed to this movie ran 80 minutes long it condenses things with the television show there there is some some segments that will drag out there's uh, a slower pace to that you know the original Doctor Who series. And this one basically provides all the details at just kind of a quicker pace. Some of the scenes were just rushed through. Some of the subplots were kind of downplayed. But essentially, it's the same story. And my last question so far is the character of Barbara. You pointed out the differences in the movie Doctor Who and the Daleks. What is her relationship? Is she also Doctor Who's granddaughter? Yeah. So she's Susan's sister. Um, that's the way it's played out. I mean, they, they, they play in this particular movie. Yeah, Susan and and Barbara are the are the granddaughters. And in, on the show, I mean, should mention the classic show. There's a lot of unknown history, even to this day, about the Doctor. We know that he was obviously married. He at least once he had children. He's mentioned it in the old series, the classic series. They never really touched on any of that. The granddaughter is like, it was never really explained. It's like, well, where's her parents? And it, to this day, has never been explained. But we do know that he did have children. He had a family. And that they're they're all gone. And we don't know if Susan's an alien? She She's from Gallifrey. So she is, she's not a Time Lord, though. And that's something where there are Gallifreyans who are simply people, and then there's Time Lords. There's been debate over the years, Do if, if they're not a Time Lord, do they have the ability to regenerate? And I don't know that that's ever been clearly defined. I think that there's people on the planet that if they're not a Time Lord, then they don't regenerate. Or they're not as, you know, they, their lifespans are incredibly long because they're not in the thick of things like a Time Lord will be who may run into a case where he's too sick, he, he gets injured, and he regenerates, which is that clever plot device that they created for the show is whenever the main actor's ready to move on, well, okay, it's time for a regeneration. Another thing that these movies obviously never even touched on because at this point they haven't even come up with the idea William Hartnell was still doing the show. William Hartnell wanted to do these movies, um, the biggest reason that didn't happen is because nobody knew who William Hartnell was outside the UK. Doctor Who was getting syndicated. There were some countries that, that knew Doctor Who and knew William Hartnell, but not the United States. And Peter Cushing was cast because Peter Cushing was a star and could carry the movie, especially in the U.S. Had William Hartnell been cast, then logically then they would have cast some of the other people but I don't know how they would have done it because the schedule of Doctor Who at this point was such that the seasons were very, very long, those first two or three years. They were doing roughly 40 to 45 episodes 
And that's almost an entire year. And so that season would end, they'd have maybe a month or two off and then dive into another stretch of doing 40 plus episodes. They wouldn't have had time to do a movie. They would have had to reduce the television schedule and that would have changed everything, I think. I don't know if the movies, if they would have brought William Hartland, the movies wouldn't have been successful. Then the BBC might not have even wanted to continue the, the television show. I think going with Peter Cushing was the right way to go. And then I think totally changing everything up, though, as far as that he's an eccentric human was probably the right way to go, too. You have 80 minutes. Do you really want to establish all that back history and try to to go into it? Because they were still evolving on the television show themselves. I think this was the right way to go, but it does make these two movies their own entity. They can't really fit into the the television show timeline at all or, or or continuity because he's not you know he's human he's not a he's not a time lord and that's a big big difference how long did the susan character remain in the television series she leaves in the dalek invasion of earth which is what the second movie is based on her character falls in love with the character in the second movie um tom tom yes no not tom oh not tom uh david who doesn't have the same part in the movie necessarily because there's no romance because Susan's a little girl and they don't really do a romance with Louise. um, So they kind of abandon that storyline altogether. But on the television show, the Dalek invasion of earth was the second story of the second season. And actress Carol Ann Ford decided that, you know, it was time to move on and she left the part of, of Susan Susan falls in love and but doesn't want to leave her grandfather and he locks her out of the TARDIS and says, this is where you need to stay. You've fallen in love. You're never going to leave on your own and does this kind of a classic little moment where he talks about, you know, someday I shall come back. Yes, I shall come back, you know, but go forward in all your beliefs and, and prove to me that I'm not mistaken in mind. It repeated a lot of times. They it was a featured clip in the 20th anniversary special as a way to get William Hartnell on that special because he'd already passed. William Hartnell, you know, left the show originally because he was had a variety of health ailments. Some indications are that he may have been suffering from an undiagnosed Alzheimer's, perhaps. But he uh, he left the show at the end or at the very start of the fourth season, but. Lee lived until the show's 10th anniversary and he's featured in a cameo role and that and then died shortly after that. Susan was the first character to leave the show and they replaced her the very next week with a girl named Vicky who was basically a carbon copy of Susan. So everything I've read it wasn't a decision to replace the actress. It was Caroline Ford's decision to leave the show. So what was her character's relationship to Doctor Who? On the television show? Yeah. She was a granddaughter. Okay. So my next question, and I know we we can cut this out if you want, but I know that Dr. Who usually has a companion. Were these, in essence, these granddaughters, did they fill the role of the companion in those early episodes? Well, the early, on the television show, there was the one granddaughter, and then Ian and Barbara, who were teachers. They're not related. And they were the first companions. They were the travelers. Oh, okay. And, so anyone that goes with him is the companion. Right. Okay. Right. You know, Susan leaves. They bring in a character named Vicky the very next week. At the end of the second season, 
Ian and Barbara finally find a way home. Because this movie, again, didn't really touch on it so much, but in the television show, the Doctor has no control over the TARDIS originally. He goes where he goes. He can't get them back home. Once they leave Earth, he can't get them back to 1963. In the modern show, the Doctor controls this TARDIS a lot better. But back then, the TARDIS itself wasn't working properly. Another reason why it looks like a police box, which they don't really talk about in the movie, I don't think. But there's a, de- uh, what they call it, a uh, there's a circuit, basically, that allows it to blend in to its surroundings. Well, it's a police box, which looks great. London, England, 1963, which is where the story starts off. But then when they land in the caveman times, it's still a police box. It gets stuck. And only in one episode and the entire show's run, does it actually work properly? And it doesn't even work properly. It becomes like a piano and like a a clock or a bookshelf or a cupboard or something. After that, that was comical in that episode because it kept doing these ridiculous things and then it goes back to being a police box and then they keep it that way. And they'll, I mean, it's so iconic now that you wouldn't change it. And that's, that's, I think it was even explained that he could change it now if he wanted to, but why? Because it's it's so cool. I think he even he says something along those lines and then that's, it just stays that way. As, the, as, you know, when Ian and Barbara find a way home, they leave. And then it just, at that point, it's the revolving door on the show. Some of the companions stick around for a season, sometimes three or four years if they're popular and, and want to stay. Inevitably, at some point, the companions leave. In some cases, they die. Some of the companions were killed off. You know, it's been a while since any, any companion's been really killed off. But, they, they, you know, sometimes they leave not necessarily by, by choice. The doctor, you know, there was one companion that broke one of the doctor's rules and kicks him out and leaves him behind he's from the future leaves him behind in like what was modern day earth and it's like you know he's he's mad because he's like well you know how am i i'm living in the past or whatever and oh, well yeah good luck well thanks for letting me derail us with a few of those questions but uh, i feel good now you may proceed <laughs> so i guess let's uh, i'm gonna throw some questions your way okay this movie I mean, even like I said, the theme music is different. So you immediately get this kind of jazzy, spacey theme, and, and you kind of dive right into the story. The music, I mean, it definitely felt like mid-1960s space age kind of stuff. When the, when the movie starts proper, how did you think of, of, of Peter Cushing? Uh, I've always thought that it's almost hard to see that it's Peter Cushing. It's just the way that I think the mustache and the hair... And his mannerisms are very different than he does in some other films. What do you think of, of his performance? Well, first, I want to comment on the music. I liked the music very much. In fact, one of my first notes was, love that swinging 60s music. As far as Peter Cushing, this may sound weird, but I expected more. I saw more of what I expected from Peter Cushing as Doctor Who in the second movie. Uh, in this movie, he's kind of passive. He doesn't really... I, I don't know. I was surprised. I, I I thought it was more subtle and underplayed than I expected. I'm really curious. I, I've never been able to see if he was channeling William Hartnell or not. And there may be an interview out there that I've never read. I'm curious because William Hartnell, of course, because he is playing a grandfather type on the show, always kind of plays it more subtly. He's On the, on the show, he's, he's kind of a crotchety old guy. 
Cushing does not play that at all, which I think is good because you, you want to make him kind of, you know, endear him to the to the audience and make him the kind of the crotch deal guy. You don't have six or seven episodes to develop the character and realize that, well, yeah, he's crotchety, but he really does care. He just doesn't want to say that he cares, but he does. And you don't have that time. You got 80 minutes. So you, you I think going that route of making him not so crotchety, not crotchety at all, was the right way to go. But I agree. It, it ended up making him very passive. And because he was kind of channeling that, well, I'm older, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a bit eccentric, so I'm not going to get in the thick of things. When clearly, physically, he could have. He was only a few years removed from some of the action that he did in like horror of Dracula. And you're like, well, Peter Cushing could, you know, kick ass if he wanted to, but the doctor was never really, that version of the doctor was never really physical in any way, shape or form. And I think that may be why he played it more passive. I do like his relationship with Susan, his granddaughter though. And I think the, the times when he's passive, it's because he's, Susan is much more active in this one, and it kind of flips, I think, in the second one. But I really like their relationship, how he encourages her, and you can just tell he's very proud of her because she has that scientific mind and can figure a lot of things out on her own. And it's a sort of a, eh, not smug, but it's like he's content. You know, he's taught her right, he's brought her up right, and he's proud of her. See, that's different than the show because in the show, she's kind of a little bit of a rebellious teenager a little bit. She's incredibly smart, you know, but sometimes the doctor has to kind of remind her to focus on this, on being smart and, you know, not be, because she just, she's headstrong. You're not getting that from, from this version of Susan. She's a little girl who is proud of her grandfather and he's proud of her. I, I like that better. Yes, probably wouldn't play out in a weekly television show as well, unless, you know, because the way that the show played out, you know, sometimes Susan would, would, her precociousness would get her into the situations, which I guess they could do with the younger girl, but sometimes some of the danger that they face on the show is better if you've got older characters and not necessarily dealing with a little girl. But for the movie, I actually like that element, and that's something that was not present in the original show. So let me ask you this. For, for me, this is the crux of this movie, and whether I would want to seek out more Doctor Who based on watching it. This is a kid's movie. It is. There's a lot of slapstick, and I just... How well does that represent the show? I never thought of Doctor Who, the show, being like that. So the show originally was a kid's show. That's the way it was It was designed. And in the first two to three years, it's actually was even supposed to be educational. The format of the show went basically sci-fi monster historical, sci-fi monster historical. The doctor would get into uh, real-life historical events. He meets Marco Polo. He goes to the French Revolution, the Crusades. You know, there's all, he meets Helen of Troy. There's all these historical events that some play off better than others. You're dealing with a limited budget, so sometimes it didn't come off as good, but in other times it did. And by the time you get to the... The end of of the William Hartnell era, and then Patrick Troughton steps in as the as the second Doctor. The the historical elements are quickly erased. In fact, Troughton's very first story was called "The Power of the Daleks." They bring the Daleks back, and then the second story is called "The Highlanders," 
and that's the last true historical drama until the 1980s. There would be moments where he obviously he's, he goes in the past and encounters people who may be from the 1800s or 1500s or whatever, but we're not getting well-known characters. We're not getting well-known events. We're just getting people that take place in the past. The historical drama element was the educational aspect of the show originally, and then they abandoned that. I think that watching those old, watching the old shows, it, it's it, kind of like you know, with Dark Shadows. If you you know watch so many episodes, you realize that stories are are kind of you know stretched out. You're dealing with a five episode a week soap opera, and so things might start on Monday and they're still going on 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 Friday. That's kind of the way with some of the old Doctor episodes. You're dealing with a six-part story that could probably be told better in half that amount of time, but it's a slower-paced way of telling the story, which was common for back then, but is not now. It's hard to say, hey, if you want to watch Doctor Who, go back to 1963 and watch all of them. You're going to struggle with those early episodes. If you like the concept of, of a time traveler and, and going off into space and meeting aliens, I would start with the, the contemporary series. I would say dive into that. It references things to an extent that happens in the old show, but it's much more accessible. You're dealing with a, a standard hour-long episode. You know, it's not a, a long series of, oh, I got to watch four or five episodes to get a complete story. The longest, I think, is is three episodes. Even occasionally, maybe a two-part. Pretty much everything else is a standalone. If they're all related, and there's characters that come back and things that are referenced, but it's much more accessible, and it's not a kid's show. It's much more of an adult science fiction theme than the original series. So a lot. I don't. I'm not dogging it because it. I said it's a kids' movie, but these days kids' movies have enough to keep the adults entertained and i didn't feel like this did i mean i thought it was strictly for kids and i got a little antsy watching it as far as i mean i get the historical part and the educational for the tv series but was it just as outright silly you know it depends on on how you look at it it was never approached to be straightforward silly budgetary concerns would sometimes make the monsters look silly. Sometimes, you know, but there would be certain elements to stories that would be scary, you know, um, maybe not. I mean, the Daleks were, the kids were terrified of the Daleks back in the 1960s. And, they, you know, they're, I mean, yeah, there's, you think about it, well, go up a flight of stairs and they're going to follow you. They fixed that, obviously, by the 1980s, they say, well, yes, the Daleks can fly and can go upstairs and, and even, you know, contemporary has even expanded on like what the little knobs are on, on the bottom part. They're actually like, you know, bombs that could blow off and and the parts of the Daleks go flying off. I mean, yeah, they've, they've expanded on what the Daleks can do. But originally they were limited, but scary by mid 1960s, early television standards. Some of the monsters were scary. Yeah. Goofy, though, sometimes because you're dealing with a dollar fifty budget. The equivalent of looking at monster films from the 1950s, a lower budget monster film, not going to scare a modern audience, barely scared old audiences. It's kind of the same way when you look at those the original run of the series. I like what you said about the Daleks because 
some of my favorite parts of both movies were when they would fight the Daleks and they'd just grab one of the arms sticking out and swing it around or push it down a ramp or so that was kind of funny you I read that they in the movies they changed uh, they shoot out looks like fire extinguisher smoke or yes but in the they wanted to use fire, but thought that would be too scary for kids. Is that right? On the, on the television show, they it basically when they would would shoot their it was like a laser beam of sorts, and they would do an effect of like doing like a negative mm-hmm. version of the the person. You'd see their skeleton, and then they would drop dead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Daleks essentially look the same. There's there's small tweaks. You know, I'm not going to go that small into the details, but there's little things that are are different. Interestingly enough, that some of the changes they made, and even I think the Daleks by the second movie, BBC would actually buy some of those Daleks and would end up incorporating them onto their television show Hmm. um, and some of the changes. So, and the Daleks would continue to change over the years. But yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, there's there's some, some, where they, they are much more physical with the Daleks in these movies. And they were in some of the first appearances on, on the Doctor, on Doctor Who, but. In later years, then they would kind of like whenever the Daleks would come, you just kind of back off, you know. And it's like inevitably, yes, there there would come a moment where they'd gang up and shove the Daleks into a swamp or something. You know, the Daleks are usually they have numbers and they have weapons and and they're deadly. And in in contemporary Doctor Who, especially when they started up, the Doctor was almost terrified of them because the Daleks end up playing a really big part. On the show and in, in the and the contemporary who, where they went to war with the Time Lords and basically wiped each other out, there would be some some storyline involving that the Doctor saved his people and put him into like a little micro universe type thing. But uh, the Daleks caused a tremendous amount of death, and when they first bring back a Dalek in in two thousand five. The doctor is terrified, and he wants to immediately kill it. He gets angry at it because the Dalek is, he thought, were all destroyed with his people. He thought he's the last of his kind, and he sees this Dalek. And it's it's a great episode, one of the best, because it shows in that episode what modern technology, you get to see the Dalek fly. You get to see the Dalek, you know, parts come off the Dalek and, and are used as weapons and the things that the Dalek can do to kind of regenerate its body, and and it, you realize now they're a lot more deadly than they than they used to be, because they reached a point where Dalek stories were pretty paint by number, and then they would allow them to take two three years off, and they'd bring them back, and they would be cool again, and then okay, let's take another two or three years off. Now they're they're you know they're much more badass in the contemporary show. And this is uh, well, I. We all know I've never watched Doctor Who. I didn't know that the Daleks weren't just robots. And is, is the series consistent with what they do in the movies? That yes. there are aliens inside. They're, Why is it they did they say in the movie they were uh, exposed to something and that's a protective armor? Yeah, essentially it's that they're they're mutated creatures that are having to survive in these in these the Dalek cases um, so that they can actually do something. They're Basically, these these these. What's the best way to describe a Dalek? A slug-like creature, you know, that if you had it on a table, it couldn't do anything, couldn't defend itself. But it build they build these cases for themselves as weapons, and that's how they continue to survive. And then 
there's a lot of things over the years where you know they they did some explanation that the Daleks were actually a creation from a, a guy named da- uh, Davros, who he's basically a mad scientist and he's kind of the creator of the Daleks, which was not the idea at this point. The Daleks were kind of created themselves, but then they did a little bit of retro uh, storytelling and said, well, actually they were before the war. Davros created the Daleks and the Daleks actually survived the war. And I, that's a whole nother thing where they just, but he's actually, it's been a while, but he was on the show. They brought him back in modern who in a pretty big fashion. And, and there's like multiple Dalek races, you know, one that's kind of the pure Daleks and the one of the mutated creations. And it goes down all sorts of crazy paths. So, but yeah, they're, they're, they're slug like creatures essentially. And in the first movie, we do see one of its hands yeah. or claws or whatever. It's a little bit uh, amphibious, it looks like. Very similar to what they did on the TV show okay. originally. So at that point in the show, we had... That, we, that was the idea that there okay. you saw the hand. They change it a little bit, and it's kind of more of like a multi-tentacled slug-like creature when you get to see it. That was a big thing, too. But you just never saw the inside of a Dalek. And then they finally reveal it in one episode, and... and get it to see a little bit more but even then you don't see it a lot and humans can be kind of converted into being inside dalek you know daleks they can be kind of taken in it's this crazy process again and it seems to change depending on the season and the writer but yeah humans can be converted into daleks as well a little bit of trivia terry nation gets a lot of credit for his dalek creations and it's because he had this grand vision that he was going to make the Daleks their own show and make them basically just as big, if not bigger than Doctor Who. Never happened. I'm not sure the Daleks could have carried their own show because how could the villains carry their own show unless you had like a hero or a group of heroes fighting them? They did create a character in the comic strip called Absalom Doc, who was kind of a Snake Plissken-like Dalek killer. That could have been cool, but I don't know that it, it would have... I think it would have been too adult and too graphic for the time and would have been probably more than people would have been accepting. I think it could work now, but, I mean, they haven't even talked about the Daleks getting their own show now. Terry Nation's very protective. He's Terry Nation's gone, but he's, his estate's very protective. That's why a lot of Dalek stories don't even get shown on BritBox or whatever because it's extra licensing, extra money to, to even show those episodes. But he gets a lot of credit for these movies, and and I think that's a little unfair. Again, like I mentioned earlier, Sidney Newman not even getting any credit, or uh, David Whitaker, who was involved in some of the script writing as well, just gets you know totally ignored as well. So I think there was a reason for it, if I remember correctly. Yeah, the the, the screenplay was credited to uh, Milton Sabotsky, of course, a well-known name from Amicus. Uh, David Whitaker did additional material. I'm just going to read this here. This said, Dalek creator Terry Nation only agreed to license his teleplay to Sabotsky if Whitaker, who was Nation's script editor when he wrote the original teleplay, was hired to adapt it. A deal was therefore struck that would allow Sabotsky to receive the credit, despite the screenplay actually being written by Whitaker, <laughs> who doesn't get any credit at all. A lot of crazy deals and yet Terry Nation gets his name and, and a, you know and gets a lot of credit more than he probably should so you mentioned Sabatsky so these were Amicus films early Amicus yeah they they, they 
They were under the name of, of Aru, A-A-R-U Productions, but it was actually Amicus. The reason they didn't put the Amicus name on it was because they didn't feel like Doctor Who fit into the Amicus box at that time, so they, they put it under the, the separate name. But yeah, the, these are basically early Amicus films. Of course, Milton Sabotsky, I mean, if we need to mention who he is, he did a lot with Amicus, obviously. He joined with Max Rosenberg to form Amicus in 1962. His horror cred, well-known, Dr. Terror's House of Horrors, The Skull, Vault of Horror, and countless others, and even gets a joking reference name in The Monster Club, which the Vincent Price movie in 81, which I just covered over at the blog. They kind of do an in-joke with a name, or a name similar to Milton Sabotsky, kind of giving a, a shout-out to him. The music, let's talk about the music, because it is a jazzy mid-60s theme. Malcolm Lockyer was the one who did it. Lots of TV work. But he did do music for um, Island of Terror, uh, Island of the Burning Dam, House of the Dam, Deadlier Than the Male, Vengeance of Fu Manchu. Um, he died in 1976 at the age of 52 of throat cancer. Ooh. You know, I find that in doing research for films, uh, old films and whatever for the blog and for the podcast, I always get saddened when I see some of these actresses or whatever. It's like, whatever happened to them? Well, they died at the age of 34 or whatever. And you wonder why they didn't do anything past a certain point. And it's, well, it's because they didn't they didn't live. They had cancer. They had a disease or whatever the case may be. So he was very well respected, apparently, even though might not have a long film credit history. He did do a lot of work outside of the film hist- uh, industry. So... Um, his death, I think he was even on tour, I think, at the time that he was battling throat cancer. Most people didn't even know he was suffering from it. Directed by Gordon Fleming. He does both movies, mostly TV work for him, The Saint and The Avengers. You're going to hear The Avengers a lot because, as I said before we started recording, I think everybody in England worked for The Avengers at some point. And I, when that show ended, people were out of work. It had to be, because I swear to gosh, every British actor was at least in one episode of The Avengers. Okay, random trivia just throwing out here. David Graham and Peter Hawkins, they did the voice of the Daleks. They also did the voice of the Daleks in the TV show. So they were one of the few that actually came from the TV show over. We've got Roy Castle. Roy Castle only had 18 acting credits. Here he plays the character of Ian. Um, he does the voodoo segment in Dr. Terror's House of Horrors. He plays the the uh, the jazz artist. He also did Legend of the Werewolf in 75. He was host of a, key, of a uh, kids' TV show called Record Breakers for more than 20 years in the UK. And actually holds quite a few different World Guinness records, including a tap dancing record. It was tied into the show. He would do things on the show and actually would do World Guinness records. I think he had four different World Guinness records. He was an accomplished jazz trumpet player, uh, had a lot of different recordings with artists. He died in 1994 at the age of 62 of lung cancer, which they believe he got from secondhand smoke in the jazz clubs that he performed in. Around the time of his death, there was the Roy Castle Clean Air Award given to restaurants and businesses that voluntarily banned smoking before it became law in a lot of, of parts of the of the world, basically. Um, his wife Fiona campaigned for you know stricter guidelines and uh, also tied into the Roy Castle Lung Cancer Foundation. So hmm. interesting actor, you know, kind of a goofy character here, but he was actually a well accomplished uh, jazz musician outside of of what he uh, what he did in the in the film industry. Jenny London 
plays uh, Barbara. Lots of British TV. Uh, the Saint, Tales of the Unexpected, Sherlock Holmes, and The Avengers. Uh, Roberta Toby plays Susan. A lot of British TV, but she does have a few horror films in the 70s. She was in Blood on Satan's Claw and Beast in the Cellar, both in 71. Her father, George Toby, actually played in a 1975 episode of Doctor Who called Pyramids of Mars. Kind of a little cool little thing there. We got Barry Ingram, who plays one of the characters. And that's the only character I'm going to mention because there were so many people and they all looked the same to me. Aladon, one of the main characters. Uh, lots of British TV. Uh, I did some other Doctor Who episodes. The Avengers. He also did American TV, and I thought this was interesting. He must have come to the States at some point because he started doing sitcoms like The Jeffersons and One Day at a Time. Did Heart to Heart. He was on Days of Our Lives, and he was even on Star Trek. Yep, we got a Star Trek reference. He was in uh, Star Trek The Next Generation episode called Up the Long Ladder that has a... They beam up a group of people off a planet, and they're all like... British and Irish, and they're like living simple farm lives or whatever. So I don't know what character he played, but I think he may have played the, either the the elderly, fatherly type character or the drunk. I can't remember which one. And a little tidbit here about Gordon Fleming did not originally uh, realize that the Daleks' dome lights only flashed in synchronization with their speech. That caused problems in post-production, and actually they had to change some of the script so that the Daleks would, would speak in conjunction with the lights, which is why they've always kind of speak in, in, in this in this crazy uh, you know manner, but it's even amplified because they were trying to match it up to the lights. So he made some some problems for in the post production part of it. Yeah, I don't I have I sound like such an old man, but I had a little sometimes had some trouble understanding them. Uh, and I don't know if it was that or just because they did have such interesting voices. Now, do you know if they fixed that in the second one? I, I read that piece of trivia before I watched the second one and I was kind of trying to watch and more than anything in the second one, I saw that the lights weren't even flashing at all. That may have been the reason why. I didn't read specifically that that was why they didn't do that. But yeah, it's probably to, to make it easier so that they could make changes in post-production. Finding this and the second movie is a little hard to do, um, as with a lot of older Doctor Who DVD releases. It's out of print. Um, you can find the box set for about $45. It comes with a third disc called Dalek Mania, which is, I think, a documentary. I didn't get a chance to watch that, watching too much Vincent Price uh, this month. But uh, you can rent it on Amazon Prime, or you can get it free with BritBox. That's probably going to be one of the easiest ways to get it. And 45 is not bad. For the two movies and a documentary, if you're a Doctor Who fan, uh, if you're a sci-fi fan, if you're a British fan, you know, it's maybe a tad pricey, but you're probably not going to get it cheaper than that. Old Doctor Who DVDs, because Doctor Who fans are who they are, they, they, they're hard to find. A lot of fans don't give up their movies, so when you find them out there, you're going to pay a higher price than you might think is normal for Doctor Who, but that's simply because they're harder to find. I think that these will come out on Blu-ray in the next couple of years. It just seems like the... I don't know where I got my copies. I had them digitized, and I watched them on the computer. Beautiful movies. And they look... The ones I saw were in very good condition. They were um, Studio Canal releases, I think. Yeah. 
Uh, so you know, I think it may have even come out on Blu-ray over in the UK. I didn't no. check the UK release. It's possible that they've yeah. been released. Over but it, it, I just don't know why they wouldn't have come out unless there's some type of rights thing. But I, I think they'll be out. And that the rights thing is is possibly an issue because it involves Terry Nation. You don't necessarily. So you've got like I'm sure clearing the rights with the BBC, but then you got to add to that clearing the rights with Terry Nation's estate. That's probably some obstacles that whoever does own the rights to these films. You know, whoever ends up owning the rights to the Amicus films might not feel like it's worth paying the extra clearance money to, to get the rights. And Terry Nation and his estate, rather, they love the Daleks, and it's 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 top dollar to, to include them or to release them, which is why even BBC Home Video, you know, had problems with, with some of the Doctor Who stories. And even, like, make, doing novel adaptations of some of the Daleks stories... Back in the day, Terry Nation's estate blocked and was asking for crazy amounts to, to even give the rights to do an adaptation on, on a story that was already done for television. So bottom line, did, did you, with this film, did you enjoy it? Is it did it give you a, a, a desire to watch the second film? Uh, it's a loaded question. I struggled to enjoy this. Uh, it was a little too childish. I guess, but it, it did motivate me to watch the second one. Uh, I had always had in my mind that people thought the second one was not as good, and therefore I thought, oh, well, I bet I will like it better. So I was kind of eager to watch it, but there were a lot of things I liked about this, though. I like how the action started right away. I liked the, I said it was pretty and nice. I liked the music. I thought the little girl was good. Uh, two main things, though, that I enjoyed the most I enjoyed that part of the equipment that uh, the Daleks had were lava lamps. <laughs> and I really liked the boots that the aliens wore. Yes. When they were climbing up the mountain, you got a good look at those boots. Um, yeah, the, the costuming, the colors, I mean, this is very much a product of its day. So I, you know, for years, I liked the first film better than the second. I think upon this revisit i like the second better than the first i think my problem with the second is because of some of the character changes that they did it kind of jarred me a little bit we'll dive into that in a second yeah and one other thing you didn't bring it up in trivia i just think it's interesting that uh doctor who and the daleks played on a double bill in the united states with night of the living dead that's interesting yes what a double feature (laughs) so we're ready to to take a break and move on? Yeah, we'll take a break, and uh, when we come back, we'll find out what was happening in the UK in 1966. This is Invasion Earth, 2150 AD. This is Invasion Earth, 2150 AD. Planet Earth has been bombarded by meteorites, subjected to cosmic rays, savagely invaded by men of steel who have no flesh to pierce, no blood to spill. This is 2150 AD, the year when human beings are turned into living dead men, robo-men, the underground slaves of the world's new dictators. Twenty-one fifty A.D., a year that will thrill you and terrify you. No! 
a year of rebellion as a brave handful hold out in a last-ditch battle for human survival. Attention! Leading the resistance fighters is Peter Cushing, his most thrill-making role. Ah! Aided by Bernard Cribbins, a reluctant traveller into the dangerous future. Have you seen the girl? Listen, where's the girl? Ray Brooks, the boy with the knack who doesn't find life so easy in the year 2150 A.D. Andrew Keir, Jill Kazin, Roberta Toby, all of them fighting to the death a mobilized band of burnt-out human beings, Robomen. With their flying saucers and an army of bloodless, fleshless metal monsters, this is Invasion Earth, 2150 A.D., a shattering look into the future. They're no good! The bombs are no good! Doctor Who, Susan, and niece Louise help a police officer named Tom Campbell and travel to the far future of 2150. However, the simple trip to show off their time machine, the TARDIS, turns deadly when they discover the world has been conquered by an old foe. The Daleks have returned and they have a nefarious plan for planet Earth. Okay, it is time to do what happened in the UK in 1966. I'm going to ask you a question, sir. Who was the Queen of England in 1966? <laughs> mm, I don't know. They change so frequently, it's hard for me to keep up. <laughs> Here's a shocker. It's Elizabeth II. Oh, okay. Uh, I bet you don't know who the Prime Minister was. No. Harold Wilson. Oh, I was going to say Harold yes. Wilson. Yeah, I don't think anybody remembers good old Harold. Random, random tidbits about 1966. And I'm going to... I don't know how you pronounce this. I'm going to say Chi-Chi. Could be Chai-Chai. <laughs> Chi-Chi the panda at London Aww. Zoo was flown to Moscow for, as it read, a union with Ann Ann of the Moscow Zoo. So Chi-Chi and Ann Ann had a little boom boom. <laughs> May 1st, the Beatles played their last conventional concert at the Empire Pool along with a couple of other bands. I wonder whatever happened to the Rolling Stones and the Who. Uh, that'd been an interesting concert to be at. No, no kidding. Let's see here. On June 23rd, uh, the Beatles had their 10th number one hit with Paperback Writer. Ian Fleming released a short story collection called Octopussy and the Living Daylights. I honestly, I've never read a lot of Ian Fleming. I didn't know that those two were short stories and in the same book. Hmm. A couple of Who Was Born in 1966. Helena Bonham Carter was born on May 26th, and I thought he was a lot older than this. Gordon Ramsay was born on November 8th. He looks like he should be older than that. <laughs> He's had a hard life. Okay, top in the music, of course, Rolling Stones released Paint It Black. Perhaps one of the saddest days for fans of the Beatles happened on November 9th. John Lennon met Yoko Ono. <laughs> <laughs> on television, October 29th of 1966, William Hartnell makes his last regular appearance on Doctor Who in the fourth episode of The Tenth Planet. 
Patrick Troughton debuts at the end of the episode, and his first regular episode would be the following week on November 5th, Power of the Daleks, Episode 1. And I thought this was odd. The Monkees debuted on BBC One on December 31st in black and white. They hadn't converted a lot of uh, their programs to color yet, and apparently even though The Monkees was available in color, it was broadcast in black and white. Hmm. Popular films of the day included Alfie, The Brides of Fu Manchu, Dracula, Prince of Darkness, Eye of the Devil, Island of Terror, Plague of the Zombies, which you just mentioned Mm -hmm. is one of your favorites, The Reptile, and The Witches. That's what was happening. Hammer films there. Yes, that was what was happening in 1966 in the UK. Meanwhile, over across the pond, Doctor Who and the Daleks was released in the UK on June 25th, 1965, but didn't have its US debut until July 1966, by which time the second movie was having its debut in the UK, August 5th, 1966, to be precise. Daleks Invasion Earth 2150 AD. Neither you or I could find when it had its US release date. I'm going to assume it eventually got it, but it might have been maybe a few years down the road because the movies were not a box office success. Uh, could it have been a not seen in theaters but just gone to TV? Uh, it could have been, but you know, Doctor Who, I, to the best of my knowledge, was was so seldom. I mean, it wasn't even seen on television in the states yet mm. by that point. Uh, it didn't debut in the states until the 1970s. And they did a package of episodes with the third Doctor, John Pertwee. William Hartnell and and Patrick Trout and the first two Doctors, their stories weren't made available to the United States until the 1980s. Early Doctor Who was was not seen. Uh, It was traded amongst collectors, but not ever offered officially as part of a syndication package. (laughs) Meanwhile at the theaters, we have Peter Cushing coming back as Doctor Who. And right out of the gate, there's there's some big script changes in this one. Now, the characters of Ian and Barbara are gone, despite the fact that they were present in the original television series, which was called The Daleks' Invasion of Earth. It was the second story of the second season. As I mentioned, Roy Castle and Jenny Linden were unavailable, so rather than recast, they create new characters. We have a character called Tom Campbell, played by Bernard Cribbins, who's played, he's kind of goofy a little bit, but he's not so much. He's not nearly as clumsy as the first. He's played a bit more straightforward. Not really the dashing hero type as Ian was was tried to be portrayed as in the television series, but nonetheless, uh, we'll be talking about some interesting Doctor Who trivia about Bernard Cribbins. You have the character of Susan, Roberta Tovey comes back playing her, and now uh, there is a niece introduced, the character of Louise, played by Jill Curzon. The story essentially follows the pattern, for the most part, of the original series, of course, with the changes in characters. We have to introduce Tom, who is foiling a robbery and goes into the TARDIS, which is a police box, and finds out that it's a space machine and they go off on, on a mission and, and travel to 2150 A.D. In the, in the future to discover that Earth has been taken over by the Daleks. This would be their second appearance on the TV show, and uh, it was a pretty big second appearance. It was uh, a big scope for the television show at the time because they included some location shots of, of the Daleks on, on London Bridge. and Isn't it called London Bridge, right? Yes which, of course, made for some pretty dramatic 
photo opportunities and publicity and such. That was pretty big for the day. Uh, and plus a lot of location shots that were that were done also set it apart from uh, some of the uh, other stories they were doing at the time with much lesser budget. So I think they pretty much blew their season budget on some of the shots for uh, the television serial. What are your thoughts out of the gate on Dalek's Invasion Earth? I liked it much better. It uh, appeals to me more. I like the post-apocalyptic setting and the story versus them just going to a planet and kind of, you know, interfering with, with what's going on there. I didn't know how tied to the first movie it was going to be. And at first I thought, well, it's not going to be, first of all, the Daleks can now seemingly move around on surfaces that aren't metal. However, Doctor Who uh, calls that out. He says, oh, they must have been, well, I don't know if he even knows why, but he noticed that they can now move around and they don't need metal. Well, they have spaceships too, which is, they they didn't have that in the first movie either. So they, they, yeah, there's there's been some advances. Yeah, Yeah, and he he was surprised. My favorite line in both movies is when he sees Daleks and he says, Daleks? Yeah. I, of course, can't imitate him, but it was a really good reaction. But he thought that their adventures in the first movie, they had destroyed the Daleks. Yeah. But then again, he catches himself and says, well, he doesn't really know when that was because I guess with time and space, yeah. that could have been the future, not the past and all of that. So I liked that. I thought that was very smart. It's not as pretty a movie. It's darker, and but I like that. And what else? The other thing I noticed, there's a lot of product placement in this one. The You probably have in your trivia the Sugar Puffs connection with Quaker Oats yes, or something. Yes, yes. Um, so that was kind of interesting. Always reminds me that product placement has been with us for a long time. Uh, but no, that's... I liked it. I think some of the characters, regardless if they've changed or not, are they're sort of reversed. Like I said, I liked Doctor Who better in this. I didn't like Susan as much. Barbara in the first one was didn't do a lot, but she had some funny reactions, especially with Ian. This Louise girl is like nothing, I thought. And I really liked Tom much more than I liked Ian. He wasn't a bumbling idiot and... Well, yeah, because he really shouldn't be because the Doctor doesn't get in the thick of the action as much. So that character is supposed to be kind of the leading male almost in a way. I mean, obviously Doctor Who is is the lead in these movies. But to have that bumbling character in the first movie was odd because that's not anything that's ever been done in anything else in Doctor Who. That role was supposed to be much more heroic. So it's interesting what you say about Susan having less to do because adapting the script as we became a bit of a problem because she's younger, whereas in the original script, she's falling in love and leaves the doctor at the end of the story. Not being able to do that, they had to really kind of rewrite it and ended up reducing her role in the story much less than what it originally plays out in the, in the television um in the television series. And Barbara always does kind of have, depending on the story, sometimes she gets in the thick a bit more. Sometimes she's just kind of a lurker in some of the stories. And she was also a bit more involved in the television, but it had a lot to do with some of the, I mean, I think she had some scenes with, if I remember correctly, with Susan. And some of that had to be changed by having Susan's role reduced in this movie. So It's odd that Susan... Uh, is 
treated this way. I read that Peter Cushing wasn't going to do another movie unless that actress was brought back to play Susan. Does that ring a bell to you? I, I saw the same thing, yeah. And, you know, she's a good actress. And, I mean, I saw a little thing about how the uh, director, Gordon Fleming, wasn't exactly sure that she'd be able to do a lot of consecutive lines and stuff. And I guess made, you know, a, a bet that he'd, you know, pay her whatever, you know, the equivalent of a dollar or something if she could do her oh, lines. Right. And she would, and ended up making quite a bit of money on that. And he did not offer her that deal in the second film because she had proven herself. But yeah, but then interestingly enough, then she has even fewer lines here. So I, it really, I think, had more to do with trying to adapt the original script and the fact that there was that age difference it really kind of hindered her where her what her character would do. They could have created stuff for her to do, but I think in, in adapting it, they just ended up reducing her role. I think the Daleks were more menacing, and I think it's just because, number one, we know what they've done to Earth. I mean, it's practically destroyed, and they're in familiar territory where they were pretty much restricted to their little lair in the first movie. And I like the Robo-Men, too. I like that whole subplot and uh, about Doctor Who almost getting robotized or whatever and uh, they are much more menacing i mean yeah and it, it, they have a big plot you know to take you know what they're doing to the earth's core and all of that makes them this is probably one of their grander adventures i mean daleks have always kind of fluctuated you know sometimes it's just limited to a handful of daleks on a planet sometimes it's a bigger force they would do a big story in uh, the third season of Doctor Who that uh, called the Dalek Master Plan, where they teamed up with, like, I think, I don't know, I can't remember, four or five other races. And, that you know, it was, it was 12 parts, you know. Um, so it was, for the longest time, one of the longest stories. I mean, during the course of, of the, the 12 parts, plus there was a kind of a prologue called Mission to the Unknown that didn't even have the Doctor. It was setting up the Dalek's plan. I mean, it featured... Only the second appearance of a, another time traveler. Two companions die during the course of, of the thing. It's a big, long story that sadly, I think only two or three episodes exist. The audio does, because the audio exists for all of Classic Who episodes, but the actual video doesn't. Yeah, this was a pretty pretty big scheme of the Daleks, and they do come across menacing. And I think, as you said, familiar settings, seeing the Daleks... In London makes it hit home a little more than being on a planet out in the middle of you know the galaxy. Uh, you know, it's like, well, these are the Daleks in our in our backyard. You know, and that's kind of why they went with that to make it even more menacing. What about you? Which movie do you prefer? You know, I'm going to have to say the second. I always kind of lean towards the first for a long time, and I can't even explain why, other than I I I, I liked some of the quirkiness of the first. But now, I guess older and wiser, you know, the bumbling Ian character bothers me more because I think, I think when I first discovered these on VHS back in like 89 or 90, I hadn't seen a lot of the first Doctor stuff because a lot of it just wasn't available. You know, now I've, I've seen or listened to every story and... The differences, uh, you know, bother me more, I think, because I'm like, well, I know what this story is supposed to be. With this movie, even though they changed some of the characters around, there's a lot that's done right in this second movie. And and I I would lean towards it being, even though it was uh, financially and commercially a flop, 
which is why there was never a third film. But they had planned a third film, but it just didn't work. I think it's the grander of the two films and, and actually holds up more. The music's a little different as well in this one. I like it too, though. I do. It's different. Um, it, it, it had seemed uh, a little less swinging that we got in the first film. Yeah, I will tell you, though, the scene with the Robo-Men and uh, Tom masquerading as one and trying to fit in, mm. that, they could have cut that out. That went on and on and on, and that's bordered on the slapsticky. It but did. on its own, though, it was it didn't bother me. I don't know. It just and it doesn't play out that way in the TV show either. That's not slapstick was nothing that they really did. Yeah, and to answer the question on the first one, would this make me want to watch Doctor Who? This one would. I I liked enough about it that oh wow, I'd like to see. I'd like to see what the TV version of that was like. And who knows? Once I stepped peeked into that rabbit hole, what would happen? Um, you would have. Thousands of hours of television, not quite as bad, but still, yeah, you'd have a lot, you know. And, and the fun thing with classic Doctor Who is that because you have so many different actors, even though, you know, the basic format of the show remains relatively the same with obvious changes over the course of, you know, the original run, which was 63 to, to 89. The fact that you've got the lead role changing roughly about every three years as you go from one doctor to the next to the next, you start getting your favorite eras. You know, it's always like, well, who's your doctor? You know, who is that first one you discovered? And well, who's your favorite? You know, which is why, you know, for me, my my first doctor was the fifth doctor, Peter Davison. My favorite was the third doctor, John Pertwee. His stories have a very definite Quatermass feel to him, especially the first three seasons where he's, not traveling he doesn't have he gets exiled to earth he doesn't have the ability to to travel he's working with unit which is the united nations intelligence task force he's he's basically their scientific advisor he's battling space alien attacks and invasions there's a lot of good stuff in that time time period in the doctor because he's basically he's based on earth he has his own car uh, a little yellow roadster he calls bessie you know, he, he, you've got a lot of, he doesn't really have companions per se. He does have like usually one assistant, but he's also working with the military and butting heads with them because they're wanting to blow stuff up. And he has, he's always, con- you know, commenting on that. That era of the show, I think you would probably like, if you like the Quatermass films, you'd like that era. And that's where they introduce another Time Lord by the name of the Master who, is is played by Roger Delgado, who I mentioned this past summer. He did the voice uh, in the slide audio drama. You get your favorite eras, and so yeah, I, I think you you could probably dive in and watch the the Dalek invasion of Earth. It's six episodes long, and it'd be an interesting compare and contrast to to get a feel for what the television show was like. With the you know again, you, you got to go into it knowing it's a slower pace and with a cheap budget, but. You enjoy Dark Shadows, and that's got a cheap budget, so you could enjoy Doctor Who. Their budget was probably not much different than Dark Shadows to the extent that even with Doctor Who, you never see any of the crew walking in the background, but you do see the wobbly sets, you know, walls that shake and stuff, and to me, that's always just adds to the charm of it. So you would probably enjoy some of the some of classic Doctor Who. 
I do remember the first time I saw or heard Doctor Who, and that, that would have been in the 70s when PBS played the Tom Baker episodes. And I would always watch Monty Python. And I don't know if they were on adjacent to each other, but they were both on PBS, I think on Saturday nights. And one time I, I decided to give Doctor Who a try. And at that time, it just wasn't for me. I never watched another one. But the, the, what I do remember about it is the budget and the, you know, it's things, an acquired things you just said. It's an acquired taste, you know. That's why I said if you, you know, I don't know. It might be more beneficial if you were to even think about seeing Doctor Who, maybe to watch some of the old Who, and then before diving into New Who, because then you see the New Who with all their big budget and stuff. I think there's a lot of people that struggle watching old Doctor Who because it's so it's the same character, but it's vastly different. It's a different type of storytelling, and it, the budgets are different, and the and the feel of the show. Similar in some ways, different in others, because of the of the well, just the advanced technology and the and the the fact that it's got a budget now. So, and I did watch some of the um, new ones, the David Tennant ones, and when Torchwood was was on, I watched Torchwood. Uh, but they were, you know, they were just sure in the back of my mind. It makes me want to see others, but I just never have. I, I enjoyed those. I could, you know, I could compile a list of like episodes you need to see like the weeping angels episode that's an entirely accessible episode with one of the most frightening creations ever done on television or film for that matter the for anyone who doesn't know what the weeping angels are they're basically angel statues but they're aliens they're 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 creatures and they don't move except when you're not looking at them and when in and so the episode in my it's called Blink, and the Doctor plays a part in it, but he's a very small role. For a couple of seasons, they would they would do one episode a season where the Doctor was only in a cameo role. It allowed them to film two episodes at the same time, one with the regular crew and one that was a Doctor Who story, but it was like Doctor Who light because the Doctor only appeared in one or two scenes. And in this particular story, the Doctor gets he gets trapped in the past and comes up with this crazy plot to put clues about how how to find him that end up getting put onto videotapes and it ties into a video store and all these like easter eggs that get put on because they work with a you know like a, a company that puts these on the DVDs and then the guy begins, it's like this whole cult following behind, you know, who this doctor character is who pops up in these clips. But it ends up in a crazy way, you know, working to, to help these other characters as they're encountering the, the weeping angels who have trapped the doctor in the past. Frightening stuff is there, you know, and the thing is, don't blink. You got to once they once they see you and you see them, you can't blink because every time you close your eyes, they move mm. and they move closer to you. Um, that's a good story that, that you should watch. That's a totally standalone. You don't even have to like Doctor Who to enjoy that. You know, I would watch some of these episodes. I just don't know where I'd find them. I mean, if I knew somebody maybe that owned some of them that I could borrow. I or... know. I wish I knew too. So I, you know. I, I need to get you that Blink episode to, so you can dive into that. And Well, I've seen the Weeping Angels at almost any comic convention someone does cosplay. Oh, yeah. They're fantastic looking. I think, actually, you know, you could watch the Dalek episode and Blink. And that the Dalek episode shows you 
one Dalek is all it takes, but the damage that one Dalek can do. And from that one Dalek, he could start an army. And that's the whole thing is like the doctor says, you got to destroy it. If you don't, it can rebuild its army. And that's exactly what happens. The Dalek, you know, spoiler alert, gets away and ends up recreating the Dalek. Which episode's that? It's called Dalek. Oh. Uh, It was in the first season of the Revived series. It's opposite the ninth Dr. Christopher Eccleston. And then Blink, I think, was two seasons later. Okay. Okay, so... So, what are we talking about? Oh, we're talking about (laughs) Dalek's Invasion Earth 2150. Uh, so we talked about the music briefly. Uh, different music here done by a Bill McGuffey. Not a lot of film credits, uh, only 19, but he's also an accomplished pianist. He did a variety of, of recordings. He worked with Benny Goodman. Um, he was the top pianist in Britain in 1953, 54, and 55. And he's missing a finger. Wow. And, yeah, go figure. Um, he did the music for... The Asphyx, the that is that how you pronounce mm-hmm. that one? Yeah, the Asphyx, uh, which is a fun little flick. He too had a, 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 a rather tragic early uh, passing. He died in 1987 at the age of 59, and I don't think I could find out what what he died of. Actually, I think maybe cancer, but I I, I can't remember if that was that's the right thing either. So anyway, died at a young age, sadly. Mm-hmm. Some of the other credits, of course, the Milton Sabosky did the screenplay. Gordon Fleming was back as director. Again, we mentioned some of the cast changes. Let's talk about Bernard Cribbins real quick. So he's actually got a big part in Doctor Who. He's still acting at the age of 91. But in Modern Who, he played a character called Wilfred Mott. He played basically this old guy selling newspapers in a random episode of Doctor Who. And was just his scene was awesome so they devised a way to bring him back where they introduced a new character and he ends up coming back as the grandfather of of this companion and he even ends up becoming a companion of the doctor himself and david tennant's very last uh, story he's basically the doctor's companion in that and ends up getting irradiated or it's going to get irradiated and the doctor has to sacrifice himself in order to save Wilfred. And that leads to the 10th Doctor's regeneration. Wilfred Mott was a beloved character on the show. Bernard Cribbins is, is just a wonderful actor, and so fans will, will remember him more for that uh, role in, in Doctor Who than his role here as Tom Campbell. He also uh, played in, as Jolly Jack in an episode of a, a kid show called Warzel Gummidge, which starred John Pertwee. That's what John Pertwee did after Doctor Who. He did several seasons of a show called Wurzel Gummidge, which is about a scarecrow. And Bernard Cribbin starred in The Avengers. Shocker. Of course he did. <laughs> we have Ray Brooks, who played the character of David. His character was downplayed a little bit here because, again, he doesn't get to have the romance that he did on that character had on the show. He did lots of TV work, uh, Secret Agent. He was in a House of Whipcord movie. We have Andrew Keir, who played Wyler. Of course, he was in Dracula, Prince of Darkness, Quatermass in the Pit, and The Avengers. Jill Curzon, who played Louise, didn't have a lot to do in this movie. She did some episodes of The Saints opposite Roger Moore. She was in the classic Scarecrow of Romney Marsh, which is getting a Blu-ray release courtesy of the Disney Movie Club. Uh, she left acting in 1969. I don't know why. I don't know what she did after that, but she is still alive at the age of 83. Milton Sabosky considered this the better of the two films. 
he didn't originally want to do this movie, but because he kind of felt the Dalek thing was played out. But he actually liked this one better, even though this one didn't do as well in the box office. They had planned a third film. Um, they were going to base it on the third Dalek story on Doctor Who called The Chase, which involved the Daleks and another mechanical race called the Mechanoids, and ultimately ended with Ian and Barbara finding a way home to their their current timeline. So because that was always a thing, there was. They got to Earth once, but they were the wrong size. Then they it was the wrong time. So that that's how they departed was in that what would have been the third movie. But when this one didn't do well, the third movie was effectively canceled. So we never got a chance to see the chase. I honestly don't think the chase would have played out well as a movie. It's an okay story. I'm not sure that it would have played as well though. This movie had a 60% larger budget than the original because of the location shooting. And Peter Cushing actually was supposed to have a a bigger role in this movie. He became ill during filming, and so they had to do some last-minute rewrites to reduce his role. So um, some of the scenes where he kind of plays more of a background character was related to the fact that he was fighting, I don't know, he had the flu or something, but caused some rewrites to the script at the last minute. Oh, that reminds me of uh, another reason I liked this movie. It, It does the Empire Strike Back effect where they they separates the characters for most of the movie that you're used to seeing together it separates them and then them coming back together is a big that's a thing v- so i like that that's a common theme during the hartnell episodes actually is that that because you had four people uh of kind of splitting them up when the doctor is with one companion even then they sometimes get split up and kind of do their own stories that kind of end, intertwine and then end up getting back together and when you had sometimes when there's larger numbers of people in the TARDIS, that was a pretty common way of, of splitting up and do, especially during the Hartnell era. Yeah, I mean, inevitably the the four would get separated and the Doctor would have his storyline, which required a little less action. Ian would have his storyline, which would involve more fighting and more action. And then they'd all kind of end up back together in the by the final episode. That's about all I've got on Dalek Invasion Earth 21580. I'm glad you liked that one better. I, I, you know, as much as I think you were excited about me wanting to know more about Dark Shadows, I'm glad to hear that you're willing to give Doctor Who a shot with maybe a few random episodes of the show. There's a lot of history there, and it's not all good. I'll admit that. With the low budgets, sometimes it's the stories that really make the show, and, and I think if you can get past the low budget, which I think you can, and some of the slower paced, then, you know, sometimes the best way to watch some of those old Doctor Who stories is to maybe not sit down and watch all six episodes consecutively. Some play better than others. Sometimes watch three episodes one night, watch three the next night, and that that's, works out a little bit better and helps some of the slow points not drag on as much. When did it shift from 25 or 30 minutes to an hour? With modern, okay. who they they did one season in the eighties where they went forty five minutes, um, so a what would have been a four part story was now a two part story. That was just one year, and it didn't really work well, and so it went back to that twenty five minute format. When they brought Who back in two thousand five, it's the hour format. So okay, which is common for television now, I guess. So. Well, thank you for taking me through this. I was truly interested, and uh, even what I learned today is all very intriguing, and I, I do appreciate your love for Doctor Who. 
Well, thank you for letting me do this. This is a lot of fun. I, I had fun yeah. with this one. Well, let's take a break then and come back and wrap things up. Hi, I'm Ben from the Diecast Movie Review Podcast, which is done by myself, my sister, and my father, where the genre of the movie is decided by the cast of a die. The categories are horror, drama, comedy, action, sci-fi and fantasy, animation, and musical. Also on occasion, we'll have a special episode dedicated to conversations with creators, directors, actors involved in the production of movies. Join us and see what movie we pick next. We're back. Let's look at a few November releases on home video. And there are only a few. We run across this every November after October, Halloween month. And by the way, every DVD, Blu-ray maker... I believe has had a sale in October on horror movies. There's not I don't a lot. remember it being this much in previous years, maybe something now and then. And I'm suddenly getting emails from Family Video for selling new brand new movies. They had a sale on Arrow Video. They've got one right now on Vinegar Syndrome. I mean, these are things that are used to be expensive and now you can get them on sale and you spend as much money as you would if they were expensive. I think it has to do with the physical media becoming less and less. I mean, you've got the diehard collectors like you and I and pretty much all of our friends on, you know, on various podcasts. But a lot of other people are going more towards streaming. And so physical media is dying out. But it's interesting, though, that there's obviously still a demand. There's enough people out there like with the Paul Nashi movie, the, the Beast and the Sword that came out. Limited release. 1500 Can I tell you that I didn't get that? You heard it sold out. I know. But it, you'll get, you can get the regular. Well, price. you know, I will say that, yeah, I, I, it's one of those things where I, it came out that Friday and we were traveling. And, and you asked me, was I going to order I know. I'm like, thank you for reminding I me. I know. And I was, and then I was going to, I said, well, maybe when I get there. But then when I, I got there, I'm like, oh, I got to go through PayPal. I don't know my PayPal login. It's all on my computer. I'll do it when I get home. And then I forgot about it. And then that Tuesday, I said, I'm going to, oh my gosh, I got to order this, right? And I get there and it's like sold out. I say, oh, because the mummy's revenge, I was worried that was going to sell out and it never did, but they didn't do a limited release. I will say that I did find a copy of the movie on archive.org. Now, it's obviously not going to be the Blu-ray quality. I'll, I'll... you know, do some searching around. I'm not paying $60 for that Blu-ray, which is now what it's going for on eBay. That's not going to happen. Um, so I have a copy of the Nasty film. So, you know, I'll look around. I'll get a copy of that eventually. And if not, I've got the archive.org version, which actually looks a fairly decent print for free. Yeah. Obviously, I mean, when those releases come out, it's hard to know what's going to sell out and what's not going to sell out because Twilight Time whenever they put something out is usually limited release and their stuff generally sells out, but not all the time. Some random titles don't, but you're seeing that more and more, but there's limited releases of some of these, you know, titles coming out. You know, there's not as many mainstream, uh, releases anymore. Um, and I think that's just, yeah, physical media is, is slowly going away except for us true collectors. And I think we're going to see more and more of these, Hey, we're going to put this out, but it's 1,500 copies, first come, first served, and all of us collectors are going to have to race to get it, or we're going to miss out. So I knew that little tidbit about that DVD or Blu-ray selling out because 
I, I don't have not listened to as many as I would like to, but I did listen to the Nashi cast. Uh, a new episode came out within just a couple days ago, and I was reading a little blurb. It's about a movie called, it's called The Corruption of Chris Miller from 1973. And the, the little blurb they put in the show notes made it sound like this wonderful forgotten or, or lost or not well-known movie. Well, that's one that's on sale this month. In fact, it might end today. Maybe it ends Halloween. And I'm like, well, do I buy it sight unseen? So I'm frantically listening to the Nashi cast to see what they have to say about it. It does sound really, really good. So anyway, shout out to the Nashi cast. Always been a great podcast. They have a commentary on that Blu-ray. Well, they had, I know they, they had some commentaries on the, the Paul Nashi collection yeah. one and two as well. So it says that they've, they've earned their spot of recognition. And I got to say, you know, I've listened to some Nashi cast episodes. Sadly, I have not listened to all of them, but I did go in just in the last week and I downloaded a lot of episodes, added it to my feed, you know, and not all the episodes are available anymore because they've been doing this for a long time. Some of the earlier episodes mm. have dropped. Basically, any movie that I have on Blu-ray and then a few others of interest, I've I've downloaded the episode. So I'm going to try to maybe sync up a listen to this episode and watch because I... I've seen some Nashi films. There's others. Obviously, I have a lot in my collection that I haven't seen yet. Those are not Carla movies. So those are Richard's going to watch, you know, after Carla goes to bed early some night and get caught up on some of the Nashi films. She said that she would probably give a shot to like The Mummy's Revenge or something that's got like a, a monster. But yeah, then it's, there's always that I'm afraid, you know, it's like we watched Theater of Blood and we were you know that there's a scene there with the poodles there was the scene where robert morley is is going into his house and the first thing carla says they better not do anything with those poodles and then looks to me and i'm like it's been so long i said what's pause and let me do a quick search and i do a google and i'm like yeah i'm thinking we probably need to not see this scene and she says well do we skip over it and i said no i'll just take it upstairs i literally took it upstairs went to the bedroom watched the scene yes that was not a carla scene got back down and i said okay we'll get back we just resume the movie post (laughs) post poodle pie and yeah that's 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 what i live with and that's okay because carla does have her limits she watches a lot of stuff with me but yeah, some of the extreme blood and gore or any harm to animals is where she draws the line. And Poodle Pie was understandably so. That was a pretty rough scene. I I kept thinking when they were like showing the like the what obviously was probably chicken, but they're like spooning in the the creamy pie. I did kind of start thinking, oh my god, that's a poodle. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty intense. Uh, it had been so long since I'd seen that movie. I forgot about Poodle Pie. Now, a movie that I, and we're not even to what's coming out in November yet, but that just there's always news, it seems like, about something that's coming out. But a movie I will not buy sight unseen, and I could go to any number of public domain box sets and find this movie and watch it probably, but that's Ega. <sighs> I saw that. It's coming out, and it this just looks like a cool set. I mean, it's uh, from... Film detective. Film detective, yeah. And it's going to have the regular movie. It's going to have the MST3K version of the movie and some bonus features. It's like, uh, but I don't know. That reputation, is it worth? Have you seen Ega? I never have. Okay. You know, it's it's a it's a quirky film. You got Arch Hall. Pretty much you get what you see with Arch Hall. It does have Richard Keel as, as, as the gay man. 
you got some bad 60s, you know, rock music with, with uh, Arch Hall. That said, I will... Film Detective doesn't put out a lot of titles, but they do some good remastering, and they do get some, some good prints. Their copy of The Bat, actually, is what we watched this past month, and that's a pretty good copy of that film. I have to admit, I, I'm, I'm sitting there on the fence, too. It's like, you know, yeah, you could get Ega anywhere, and I don't know how much better the print's going to be. Does it really matter? But, I don't know, Film Detective has impressed me so far with some of their... Some of their stuff. I love their channel on Sling. They've got a regular channel on Sling mm-hmm. and, and do show some some interesting stuff from time to time on there. And their streaming site uh, does have some some a pretty good selection of stuff that sometimes I'm like throws me. Like when they Black History Month and they did Doctor oh. Black and Mister Hyde yeah. and and uh, I'm trying to remember. There were several other films on there that month. There was like you just don't see right. Uh, so yeah, I, that that may be enough, and it's not that expensive. So right, right. and yeah, we're talking like buying a house or a new car no. or something. It's just, but I, I don't know. Even I just wish I knew a little more about it to know if you know I'm ever going to watch it again. So anyway, I thought I would just watch a bad version of it, and if it if I like it, you know, then get the nice I, new. I'm thinking I I may you know do that simply because it's probably going to be a fun collection to have, and and it, it is a out of all the things that get released, I was like, I had to laugh when I saw it. I was like, how the heck did that happen? I mean, you know, who sat in a boardroom is like, well, you know, we have this print of London After Midnight, but we've got Ega sitting over here. Let's just shelve that London After Midnight and let's get Ega on Blu-ray, limited edition, and we'll throw some bonus features and... Does it have an interview with Arch Hall on there? I don't know. I don't remember. I mean, uh, well, you know, he's a Monster Bash guest next yeah. year. So, yeah. I mean, I, he's out there. He's a he's a character. I've seen some interviews with him. He's a character. I'm sure somebody out there is saying, of course you should get Egon added to your collection. I am with you. I don't do a lot of sight unseen stuff. But you've at least seen the movie to know if it's... I, yeah, I, I saw it uh, actually on like my iPod at work 10 years ago, I think. I, was, I would watch, you know, movies over lunch and... You know, I haven't seen it since, and but I think it's in one of my hundred horror film box sets. Yeah, I know and, it is. Uh, in might not be might might not be bad to have that added to your collection. So, yeah. all right. So, what's coming out in November? <laughs> and uh, like I said, not much. I'm gonna be doing a couple that are just outside of our normal range, uh, 1979, but they're significant and they're related. So, for example, on November 5th. We're getting, I've heard a lot about this. It's a documentary about Alien. It's called Memory, the Origins of Alien from Scream Media. That Alien came out in 79. I don't know. I'm not a big enough fan of Alien that this excites me. But uh, like I said, there's been a lot of press on it. Uh, have you heard anything about that? Uh, yeah, I've, I've heard that, you know, there's a lot of hype up behind it. I love the Alien movies, but, you know, I don't know. There's a, some really good documentaries already on, on the box sets and stuff that... Uh, I've got the Blu-ray box set, so yeah, probably uh, I'll watch maybe when it pops up on Shutter or some streaming service down the line. Not something that's really grabbing too much of my attention. November nineteenth, uh, the Hammer Train keeps on chugging at Shout Factory. We have the Abominable Snowman from '57. Also from Arrow Video, a movie called Hitchhike to Hell. I don't know a lot about it. I think it's more of a crime thriller, but. 
the professor, Russell Johnson, is in it. So oh, wow. I thought it was worth mentioning. <laughs> <laughs> November 26th, uh, Dracula, the Frank Langella, 1979, from Shout Factory. I had in my mind that this had just come out, and I was wondering, why are they releasing it again so soon? Well, that's not necessarily true. I bought it recently uh, on Blu-ray, just the Universal Studios version. So this, I'm sure, is a beautiful box set with Mark Maddox art and a bunch of features. I don't know that I'll reinvest for it, but um, I bet there are people that will. Actually, I might, because I don't have that movie in my collection. I We watched that a few months ago. I It was on, I think, HBO. We had HBO, and that's a good movie. I do like that. I love the music in it. I hadn't seen it for a long time. That might be something I would invest in. Yeah, yeah I got it when uh, the that super deluxe soundtrack came out that... I got as a gift from a good friend of mine. Uh, so Absolutely I the, the movie best friend time. ever. I mean, yes. <laughs> and then also the same day from Shout Factory is the movie Prophecy from 1979. I saw that when it first came out and didn't like it. It was a movie that truly disturbed me because it was like this monster that was a combination of other animals, sort of. And it was yeah. very grotesque. And I haven't watched it since. I'm mentioning it because uh, that is the latest episode of the B-Movie cast. They're talking about the prophecy. So I'll probably give that a, a listen and then decide if that's something I want to give another try and possibly add to the library. Some birthdays in the month of November. On November 3rd, 1925, Robert Quarry. Maybe later you'll hear why I chose <laughs> that one. Uh, also, November 12th, 1970. Yeah, can somebody be a, a classic horror-related person born in 1970? Well, you can if you're Harvey Stevens and you play Damien in The Omen. Ah. And uh, did you see this weekend our friend um, Jonathan Angarola and his wife were watching The Omen because she wanted to? Yes. Love her for that. I had to 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 laugh at her comments a little bit in in you know in in jest, and I almost called her out because we were talking about the Wicker Man, and then she mentions oh Nicholas, I didn't see this, but she mentions Nicholas Cage. Oh right, and I was like, part of me is like, surely she's doing that as a jest, but maybe not. Maybe she doesn't know that there's an older version, and then the the memes popped up with Nicholas Cage. So I'm I'm I don't know. Maybe there's more. I haven't seen the the thing, but uh, Jonathan, if you're listening. Does does your wife did did she really think Nicolas Cage was the only version of the Wicker Man? Because boy, she there's a whole other version out there that she needs to see. Well, and I had a little uh, my heart stopped for a moment because the link that Jonathan used to show they were watching that actually connected to the Omen remake with uh, Leah Schreiber and uh. Julia Stiles. It had that little boy, not Harvey Stevens, and I was like, hold on a minute. Which are you watching? And thankfully, they were watching the original. So, 11-22-52, Jamie Lee Curtis. And 11-23-1887, Boris Karloff. Tell us what's going on. Richard, what are you going to be doing in the post-Halloween letdown? Very little. (laughs) (laughs) Going to be doing something totally non-horror related. We're going to be doing a a little mini-series called Wistful Vista Wednesdays. We're going to take a look at the films of Fibber McGee and Molly, which is old-time radio comedy. Not really in the vein of horror, but uh, some fun, lighthearted stuff to get in the mood for Christmas films. And I was trying to come up, you know, for many years on the blogs, I've been doing my countdown to Christmas, doing different versions of Scrooge and The Christmas Carol and obscure christmas movies i might be out of obscure christmas movies and 
that would fit into the weird. I mean, I know there's a lot of weird ones out there, but that would really fit into kind of a horror genre. So I, I don't know. I'm going to have to look, but there might not be much to cover this year. I'm kind of the well is running dry unless I really go start reviewing some very strictly non-horror related Christmas stuff. And I, I'm not sure that I necessarily want to do that. Probably going to be kind of quiet for the next couple of months. I've got, uh, of course, the Kansas City Crypt coming up the next couple of months. November, I just did a review on The Cat and the Canary. Had a chance to see that live and on the big screen at the Silence in the Cathedral in Topeka. Uh, that was a lot of fun. Been a long time since I'd seen that movie. And they showed a really good print of it. And I talk about that on the Kansas City Crypt. There's a print of it on Amazon Prime, which is a horrible print. There is a restored print, which actually has color tinting. We didn't see that color tinting, but we did see a really good print the other night. So don't go Amazon Prime if you're going to watch that movie. Uh, Seek out. There's actually a better version on YouTube. So... Uh, And I believe I'm going to be covering a bizarre Christmas movie in December possibly Santa Claus from 59 or maybe Santa Claus and the Ice Cream Bunny. That is totally bizarre and might be worth a mention. I've covered it on the blog before, but I thought it'd be fun to do on the Kansas City Crypt. Other than that, uh, things will be kind of quiet for the next couple months. What about you? Well, I haven't really talked about this, but uh, I'm not doing anything in November or December. Uh, I'm taking a little break. I am actually moving from Kansas City to Minneapolis, so I want to focus on that, getting there, getting all my movies boxed up here and unboxed up there so I can start watching again and and writing. So I will be back in January, stronger than ever. I am probably, I'll, I'll say more about this next month, but I'm going to, I'm going to not change it up, but have some additions to classichorrors.club. I don't know if you remember, Richard, I kind of mentioned some of this, but I'm 99% sure I'm going to do that just to expand its offerings, and and I'll talk more about that next month. But I am not going to go total cold turkey. I am going to continue my Wednesday's uh, DC Comics guy because we're only on issue eight of Crisis on Infinite (laughs) Earths, and I want to finish it before the TV shows get into their version of crisis on infinite earths and you didn't say it but you told me that's what you're going to be focusing on is getting caught up on those dc shows uh, uh yes uh, yeah that's no you know we've been watching obviously a ton of vincent price and horror films so yeah post halloween it's getting caught up so that we're ready and can watch the uh the crisis on infinite earths as it happens so that's that's the goal so a uh, no panic if anyone had any panic when i said i was moving the podcast is going to continue uh, I will be coming back to Kansas City frequently, and I hope that we'll be able to get together and record then. If not, we'll definitely be exploring ways that we can continue it uh, remotely. You'd think with this technology thing, even though <laughs> there's a lot of problems with it, we'll work something out because I'm not ready to stop yet. No, no. And I think, and if anyone doesn't understand the geography, even though. Minneapolis, you know, is is a good drive away. It is only about six and a half hours from Kansas City, um, which is, you know, obviously would be better if Jeff didn't leave. But I'm excited for him. He had a good opportunity. And uh, and so we are certainly a, uh, a drive away. And so I'll be going up and, and visiting him as well. Um, certainly, we've got a Mimiverse premiere happening, hopefully in April and of course you know we've got friends up there already uh mitch and and chris and so yeah 
you know, the podcast isn't going anywhere. We've got plans. We've got things definitely ironed out for the next couple months and tentatively lined up. We had through a bunch of ideas out all the way through, I think, May. So uh, we're, we've got good things ahead and, and uh, you know, we just we're going to be testing some some changes in as far as if we have to record in two different places. Yeah, you know, there may be some tweaks to audio quality and we'll be exploring all of that in the forthcoming months but we're going to concentrate on getting jeff moved and so we're going to be recording a little earlier uh for the next couple months so some of our other features may may kind of take a break for the next couple months we're going to be getting things in the can so jeff can have things ready to go and then we'll uh we'll figure out in 2020 the new logistics of keeping the uh the show going but it is definitely not going anywhere anything else to say for this time I think that about covers it, unless we want to dive into what's coming up next month. I always forget that. Yes, let's let's see. What are we doing next month? We are going to finally dive into Hagsploitation. Yay! Uh, so we're going to have a uh, happy Hagsploitation holidays episode next month. Uh, we're going to be covering three films. We're going to be doing Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, What's the Matter with Helen, and Whoever Slew Auntie Rue. A lot of question marks. Yes. Uh, it's going to be fun. Those are first-time viewings for me across the board. Really? Even I, Baby Jane? Uh, Baby Jane, I mean, I remember seeing bits and pieces of it. I, the more I think about it, I don't think I've ever really sat and down and watched it from beginning to end. So I'm excited about these. This is going to be kind of reverse. Next month, it's going to be kind of your territory. A lot of first-time experiences for me. So I, mean, I think that's going to be fun. So we're going to be spending the holidays with a bunch of old biddies. <laughs> Uh, that's what says happy holidays than old biddies. Yep, yep. And a sneaky peeky at January, we're going to be doing the Count Yorga films. We're going to be doing Count Yorga Vampire and the Return of Count Yorga. And those are also first time viewings for me. Wow. I don't recall seeing the Count Yorga films. Um, again, I may have seen bits and pieces, but I don't think I've really seen them from beginning to end. So I'm looking forward to that. And that is why I mentioned Robert Quarry's birthday. And, you know, I've, I've seen Robert Quarry a couple of times this past month in Vincent Price films. It's, I'm, and I know we'll talk about it in January, but, you know, he was uh, kind of the, the heir apparent to Vincent Price in, in the eyes of, of uh, AIP to the extent that Vincent Price did not get along really well with Robert Quarry. Hmm. I forget which. It's Dr. Fives Rises Again. He, even to the extent of, I think, Robert Quarry was kind of bragging on set that, you know, well, I'm a professionally trained singer. And Vincent Price responding, he says, well, you're sure as hell not an actor. So uh, (laughs) I'm anxious to see the Yorga films because I know that he he did wear the Count Yorga cape in Madhouse, in which he appeared with uh, Vincent Price and Peter Cushing. So uh, that'll be fun to finally dive into those. That's what we got coming up in the next months yep until then you can reach us by joining the facebook group page the classic horrors club podcast or giving us a call leaving a voicemail at 616-649-2582 that's 616-649-club also if you could give us a rating on apple Podcasts, that would be great that would really help us get uh, a few more listeners perhaps that's oh. about, you know, I was going to kind of say, I finally went in and did that as well for some of the podcasts I listened to. I've got to do that. Man, I'm uh, such a hypocrite. I mean, I, I know I beg that's why, people every week. And, so, uh, you know, it, it's, it doesn't take a lot of time and effort to do, but it does, it can, it can get you 
uh, out there a little bit more. So, um, yeah, t- take the time to do that, not only for our show, but other shows that you might listen to. We've got a lot of friends of the podcast. And, uh, you know, as it's, I do this periodically, and I will probably be doing it sometime sooner than later, uh, just a brief post on one of my blogs, just kind of highlighting some of the shows that are out there. Uh, we've had some new shows pop up this year. Of course, you know, we've talked about Steve Turek's new one, uh, the Diecast Movie Review. We've got, uh, you know, the Bill Watches Movie Podcast, and God love Bill. He is a marketing machine getting his podcast out there. Both of those podcasts are doing things a little different than everyone else is doing them, and I think that's that's cool. It makes them stand out. So that's all I got on that. All right. Well, I will leave everybody with another Doctor Who song. This is called Doctor Who. It's by Perry Grip. I could not find that it's on an album. However, in 2010, it was one of the songs of the week on iTunes. Wow. (laughs) So I guess to find any Doctor Who music, you've got to get obscure. You know, they're either not on iTunes or they didn't have an album released. But uh, thanks for listening, everyone. We appreciate those who called in and the feedback. And we'll see you in a month. Take care.